Welcome to another episode of the MMA Logcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And this week we're going over UFC Vegas 19, headlined by a heavyweight fight that was supposed to take place in November. But now here we are. We got Curtis Blades against Derek Lewis. Very pivotal heavyweight matchup that should tell us who is in the running for the heavyweight strap, or at least contention-wise, if uh, especially if Blades is able to get past Derek Lewis here. Very much looking forward to this card. We got 15 fights. I'm assuming that one or two might drop out come weigh-in day, but a shit ton of fights. And, uh, you know, there are some good fights uh, sprinkled throughout it. I'm very much looking forward to Derek Minner and um, uh, Charles Rosas. I think that's a great freaking fight. I think both guys have a lot of finishing capabilities, and I think it's going to be a scramble fest, which should, uh, you know, really transpire into some, some fun and entertaining exchanges. Other spots, uh, Tom Aspinall versus Andre Arlovsky. That's a great fight. Chris Daukis versus Alexei Olenek. Chas Kelly versus Jamal Emers. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of, of fun fights littered throughout this card, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, first and foremost, I do want to apologize for the delay in the podcast. This week's just been a very weird week for me in terms of uh, just getting the the engine revving to get the the mind going. I'm just not sure what happened to me this week where I was just in a rut. And it's surprising considering that, you know, I was coming off of of my first like legit winning week. I did have a winning uh, event at UFC 257, but it was very minimal. It was like one and a half unit profit. But, you know, this past weekend, plus 5.65 units, a very big, good weekend for me. Um, But I just couldn't get the gears going. I'm not sure exactly why, but finally got it rolling. We're back in business now. Um, After this podcast, I'm going to be starting up on the next event i believe ufc vegas 20 uh and i just don't want to look back you know what i mean i want to get back on schedule i want to get ahead of schedule and just get things back to normal and thankfully i finally feel back to normal so i appreciate you guys bearing with me in terms of the delay in releasing this podcast but it's out you guys have me in your ears now or watching me on youtube whatever it is i appreciate the support as always and uh yeah i hope i never have to get back into this hole whatever the hell it was but we're back in business baby um yeah let's just getting into into the betting recap um of ufc 258 big winning event for us thankfully you know what i mean considering how 2020 has gone as of late uh i'm glad to finally get back on the winning track like that and i'm hoping to you know snowball that into another winning event this weekend at ufc vegas 19 but let's quickly go over it so uh we'll go over my one loss i had a couple bets and i only had one loss which was very minimal at 0.2 units on diego lima to win via decision at plus 1150 i just had to pull the trigger in that spot especially me considering that diego lima was lima was a little bit more live than the odds had indicated you know he implemented his calf kick pretty well but he just didn't get anything else going his hands were just he was way too gun shy he was allowing Bilal to continuously back him up and he wasn't really following up on the instances where he was landing big calf kicks and it seemed like his cardio really caught up to him as well too so Props to Bilal in terms of gritting out the, the calf kicks and then just continuously moving forward and uh, really putting it on Diego Lima. So that was the only loss. Um, one of the dog of the night plays I had, or the only dog of the night play, was the Mallory Martin and Poliana Vienna under two and a half. I had one unit at plus 180 pretty much how I thought it would go. You know what I mean? Pollyanna Vienna uh, on her back eventually gets the submission victory. Uh, great win for her uh, and a solid caster at plus 180. 
Then I had 1.5 units on Alexa Grasso at minus 120. Uh, solid third round from AC Barber. I'll give her that. But those first two rounds was very indicative of kind of how I thought the fight was going to go. I just didn't understand the narrative that people were thinking that Alexa Gra or uh, Macy Barber was just going to be automatically the stronger woman just because she's been fighting at 125 a couple more fights than Grasso. I mean, Grasso was struggling to get down to 115 pounds. So you got to give her some daps too in terms of her being a big woman herself. And once you saw the weigh-ins, it was pretty evident at that point as well. So uh, I'm glad that we saw some improvements from Grasso, especially in terms of keeping the fight on the feet. But I wish she sustained it and had a solid third round as well too. Regardless, she still gets the victory and that's plus 1.25 units there. Then we move on to the uh, the lock of the night play. And this was a weird lock of the night play that I had because I had Kamaru Usman, three units already parlayed with Tamora Valiev, who won on the previous weekend. Uh, that was at uh, minus 130. And uh, then I had him, uh, I finished off the lock of the night pretty much by adding another two units on him, parlayed with the fight doesn't go to decision for Rodolfo Vieira and Anthony Hernandez. So, uh, yeah, great performance by Usman. Yeah, I shat my pant, uh, pants a little bit when he got uh, rocked by Gilbert Burns. But the, the mind of a champion, the, the heart of a champion, pulls through from Kamaru Usman. And he's able to uh, withstand that, uh, that, that rocking. He didn't get knocked down, so it didn't get recorded as a knockdown. But he survived that uh, early onslaught from Gilbert Burns. Really started to put, him on it, put it on him in the second. And then put him away early in that third round. So big, big win for him there. Very happy to see Kamaru Usman continuing his... Um, continuing his his welterweight reign because i truly believe he's going to go down as one of the best 170 years uh to ever do it so all in all plus 6.59 units that's 86 percent roi great event finally you know what i mean it's i've been banging on myself to finally get a, a solid win uh for this 2021 calendar year and i'm hoping that i can mo uh you know snowball this into ufc vegas 19 and keep this momentum rolling because I don't want those days anymore. You know, I mean, four straight lock of the night losses was horrible times for your boy. Uh, so we're finally back on track and I'm hoping that we can keep it going now. So um, before I get into the actual breakdowns, a couple of things I want to plug. My affiliate agreement that I have with CoolBet. Make sure you guys check out CoolBet if you're in Canada. There's a couple of European countries, mostly in Scandinavia, that have access to this as well too. www.coolbet.com. Whenever you guys sign up, use promo code MMALOTN2. That's the number two. You get 100% of your... Um, initial opponent uh, um, initial deposit matched all the way up to $200 so that's a great incentive I think it's a six times rollover as well too but that's pretty much the same throughout uh, the whole bookie community especially when you're taking these welcome bonuses so make sure you guys take full advantage of that again coolbet.com bonus code MMALOTN number two just two and then secondly I want to plug the Patreon patreon.com slash MMALOTN the link is in the description below as well too you guys get early access to the breakdowns obviously nothing early about this week considering the, the lull that I got it myself into but I will start posting the UFC Vegas 20 breakdowns very very shortly on there uh, not to mention the picks, best bets and props article, the Discord community that we got going on as well, 
And then lastly, the the pay per view parlay for the Patreons, uh, for the patrons, I should say, hit this past weekend. So I'm still waiting on my guy Brian Fast to hit me back so I can send him the winnings for that. But yeah, um, pretty much the Patreon community picks the four best spots uh, on every pay per view. I parlay them together. I put five percent of my Patreon money on it, um, and if it cashes, I send the winnings to the to the winner. So it's a solid way for me to give back to you guys and show how much I appreciate you guys for uh, supporting your boy. So yeah, if you're interested in the Patreon, five bucks a month, super cheap. We'll never change that. If you guys want to be more generous, there's a super supporter tier, which is 10 bucks a month. But again, five bucks a month is all I'll ever charge. I'll never go more than that. I'll always show appreciation to you guys. And it's always up to you guys whether you guys want to send your boy more or not. But uh, yeah, link is in the description below. Check that out. Uh, lastly, if you haven't subscribed to my channel and you're watching this video, hit subscribe. It helps a lot, trust me. And even more would be to hit that like as well too because that helps get my ass onto the algorithm for the for this whole YouTube UFC prediction stuff and uh, will definitely help me grow my content and grow my channel. So that's the best way to do it. Subscribe and like. Easiest things that you guys can do. Costs you $0 and maybe uses an, a little bit of your energy to just take your mouse and click like and take your mouse and click subscribe. That's all I ask. All right. All right. That's that's pretty much it. Um, let's get into the breakdowns. Sergey Spivak versus Jared Vandera. We got minus 230 on Spivak and plus 190 on the UFC newcomer Jared Vandera. And uh, let's start off with Vandera, who's a tough alum. Not tough. Sorry. I keep getting them mixed up. But the uh, Contender Series uh, alum, he fought on uh, pretty much, I believe it was the first week in November when they came back from their little bit of a hiatus. And um, he finished Harry Hunsucker within three and a half minutes of the first round. Uh, I believe Hunsucker was a very short notice. Oscar Coda was the one that was supposed to fight Jared Vandera. Uh, if you guys remember, Oscar Oscar actually ended up fighting uh, the Nick Diaz's or Nate Diaz's protege. I think his name was Nick Maximov. Um, where he was like completely outsized by like 40 or 50 pounds or something like that. But either way, with uh, Harry Hunsucker, he came in on super short notice and we saw it. He knew that he only had a limited amount of time to get it done. And he threw pretty much everything into all of his strikes and started gassing about three minutes or two and a half minutes into that round. That's where Jared really started to take over, uh, took down Harry Hunsucker and then just absolutely obliterated him with some massive ground and pound. Um, he came in as a heavy favorite in that fight. Uh, minus 280 makes absolute sense due to the short notice nature of Hunsucker, uh, as well as how undersized the Hunsucker is as well. Um, before that, he did go out there and beat the vet, the MMA veteran, Tony Lopez via decision. Unfortunately, I just couldn't get access to that tape, so that kind of sucked. And then before that, he lost to uh, Henan Fajaya. Uh, that was another one where I wasn't able to get uh, tape on that. The ones I was able to get tape on, though, were very underwhelming. Uh, so the first one that I was able to watch actually was the Vernon Lewis fight. That was against a guy that was uh, 35 years old, so 11-year difference. Uh, as well as a four-year layoff is what Vernon Lewis was coming off of. And he was still able to go out there and outstrike Jared Vendera for at least two rounds to take home a unanimous decision victory. Then he went out there to EFC. He went over uh, to South Africa to fight for that promotion. And his first fight over there was against an 8-5 and five guy named Elvis Mayo, who seemed like a boxer. 
literally just a boxer. Couldn't deal with the leg kicks of Jared Vandera. Um, and then Vandera eventually finished him in that second round. Uh, the Ruan Potts fight, I'll give him some credit for. I didn't get to see that fight as EFC does a really good job of keeping their uh, tape under wraps. Uh, but Ruan Potts, he used to fight in the UFC. So to be able to get a victory over him, even though that Potts was, let me confirm the age. Uh, he was... 42 years old when that, or sorry, 40 years old when that fight happened. So he's just going out there and fighting just absolute old dudes. And then uh, the last fight uh, in the EFC was against Ricky Micholas, who just seemed to be a striker who was 7-7 seven and seven at the time. So that's all you really need to know about his level of competition at that point. The Tony Lopez one, I'll give him that. But anytime he fought anybody with relative, you know, talent... Richard Odoms, who was 42 years old, finished him in the fifth round. Not a good look there at all. Andrew Van Zyl is another one uh, who fell to Stuart Austin, who did uh, give Dalcha Lungiambulu, who was the champion at the time, a run for his money. And then obviously uh, Lungiambulu was able to beat him via split decision. So very, very sketchy record on Vandero's part. I will give him, give him credit for beating guys like Juan Potts and Tony Lopez, but uh, Sergei Spivak is just a completely different level at this point in time. Now, I know that Spivak gets a lot of flack. Actually, let's quickly talk about Vandero's fighting style. It's just a you know, very simplistic, kind of slow guy. He trains over there at Dan Henderson's training facility. Uh, Sam Alvey is one of his training partners. Um, you know, he goes out there, just has a very slow paced game plan has a jab a nice left hook a re a leg kick uh takes the fight down when he needs to but it doesn't seem like it's something that's truly on his mind does some good uh clinch work as well too um but i think he's gonna have some trouble here against bivak who uh gonna be a big dude too in terms of size we got six three seventy eight inch reach for spivak six four eighty inch reach for vandera so slightly bigger for vandera uh but i think spivak is the much better fighter overall a lot of people want to go out there and give Spivak some flack. I'm not sure entirely why, but he has losses to Walt Harris. Okay, you get starched in 50 seconds and you just automatically get written off. Kind of like my guy Jake Collier the other week. Kind of like my guy Parker Porter the week before. Um, but then he comes back and the arm triangle chokes tied to Ivasa. And then goes out there, loses a unanimous decision to Marcin Tybura, which isn't too bad of a loss, um, given how uh, how much of a vet Tybura is. But then he goes out there and beats uh, Carlos Felipe in a in a solid fight where he's stuck behind his jab for the majority of the fight, and then in the third round goes for a takedown and just rides that top pressure and lands bombs from on top on Carlos Felipe to uh, pull away with a decision victory there. Now he comes back about five minutes later to fight a, a five minutes, <laughs> five months later uh, and fights this up and comer in Jared Vandera, who uh, has two more fights than him. But I think uh, Spivak is just much more uh, talented all around. So we've seen Spivak spend time over there with Alexander Volkov uh, for, you know, a couple months. Uh, but he has also come over to Vegas now and started training at the Performance Institute and uh, even Syndicate MMA, I believe it is, or it's Extreme Couture, one of those two. But it's a, it's a gym in Vegas, um, spending time with Francis Ngannou, Francis, spending time with Honey Marks, who's a, another former UFC fighter. Um, some good work that uh, Spivak is getting in. You know, um, I think he has a much more complete game than Vendera at this point in time. A little bit quicker to the punch. Um, ability to mix in the entire MMA game will make it very, very difficult for Vendera to come up, uh, you know, make up the difference here in terms of skill. 
Now, I'm not the most confident in uh, Spivak at that minus 230 line. I wouldn't be uh, mad at anybody that put him in a parlay or anything like that. But personally, that line's a little bit too wide for me. I do think that Spivak is the better fighter. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I still need to see a little bit more from him. And even Vandera, a lot of people are just writing this kid off. And I kind of understand why. Again, sketchy record up until this point. Uh, it doesn't seem to show anything that really you know, glows off the page. Um, so, uh, yeah, I will go with Spivak, uh, to win this fight. I'm not sure if you finish or decision, but I can see him just taking down Videra. It doesn't seem like the hardest thing to do, uh, and kind of just riding top pressure or even just kind of slowly chipping away at him and, uh, you know, jabbing his way to a victory as well too. So I think the the volume of Spivak will be able to be a, a definitive factor here as well as a as his ability to take this fight to the ground. So once again, I'll go with Sergei Spivak to win this fight via decision. Eamon Zahabi versus Draco Rodriguez. We got minus 185 on the uh, contender series vet. Um, Draco Rodriguez and plus 160 on Eamon Zahabi. So let's start off with Zahabi. Obviously, most of you guys will recognize his name. He is the brother of TriStar head coach Faraz Sahabi. And I feel like that had a little bit to do with him being able to make it to the UFC with the resume that he had. So uh, he came into the UFC with a record of 6-0. and um, Very skeptical competition on the way in. Uh, I actually know his first ever opponent, Kyle Vivian, who was 0-5 going into that fight. He's actually ended his career at 0-8. But if you go through that guy's record, you'll notice other very familiar faces, such as Jason Sago and also Sergio Pettis, who got a victory over this guy. But, uh, you know, a couple other very sketchy opponents on his record. And in he gets into the UFC uh, February of 2017. I believe that was the UFC Halifax card where he took on Reginaldo Vieira in a very, very close fight. Um, but uh, I, I did see a couple scorecards out there actually giving that fight to Vieira, so there's a potential for some hometown cooking there. But uh, yeah, not the type of performance you would, you would expect out of somebody that was as highly touted as Faraz Zahabi's brother. Uh, then he goes out there and loses two straight fights to Ricardo Hamos, or Ricardo Hamos, I should say, and uh, Vince Morales uh, via decision. Obviously, that play, that fight took place in Ottawa. Didn't get the hometown cook in there, but uh, he just didn't have the volume that uh, you would require to beat a guy like Vince Morales. Now, I'm not sure if it was like just him being a little bit uh, timid due to the the Ricardo Hamos uh, KO that he suffered back in November of 2017. He took close to, well, about a year and a half off and then came back for the Vince Morales fight and just did not throw that much. It seemed like Morales was in control of that fight from the beginning to the end. There just was no urgency on Zahabi's side. We know his style is more so focused around the striking realm, but if you do go through some of his uh, training videos and, and some of the stuff that he's been posting on social media, he's definitely been working that jiu-jitsu game as well too. He did attend a quintet-type uh, jiu-jitsu tournament over here in Ontario um, and did very well with his TriStar team. Um, you know, he's really trying to round out his game. He's still quite young too. Well, actually, wow. I don't know why the hell I thought he was much younger, but he is 33, um, so I guess he is getting up there in age. I, I'm not sure why I had believed that he was a little bit younger than that. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, you know, kind of, he's running up against the clock at this point in time. And the fact that he's having so many so much layoff in between all this time as well, it just doesn't really bode well for him. Now he's coming off another year and a half layoff. So if he was trying to get the rust off in that Vince Morales fight, 
he's going to have some more rest here against uh, Draco Rodriguez, who is very, very hungry to make a statement on the UFC scene. Um, yeah, Zahabi still needs to show a little bit more improvements on my end. Uh, being a striker, I feel like we need to see more from him. Uh, he does have good jiu-jitsu again, like I said. So if he wants to take it there, things could get very interesting. For a Draco Rodriguez, who you know also seems to like uh, the, the jiu-jitsu realm as well. I find it hilarious because I was trying to figure out a little bit more about Draco. Just through tape alone, it was very hard to really kind of figure out what kind of fighter he is. And there's actually a article out there where uh, the um, the president of King of King of the Cage, which is a company that which is the regional company that he he fought for numerous times before jumping over to the Contender Series, uh, but uh, there was a little bit of a disagreement in terms of letting him jump over to the UFC earlier. Uh, and one of the things that his uh, that the the promoter was quoted in saying was okay he's a good striker his wrestling is decent but his jiu-jitsu is, just needs help still which i find hilarious given that he has uh you know several uh submission victories on his record not to mention the one that he was able to secure in the contender series to fully put out mana martinez uh via triangle choke in that first round so um very very interesting for the the president to say something like that but it seems like you know it, it's tough to really get my grip on what kind of fighter that draco truly is like you see his fight against tony gravely getting taken over taken down time and time again and then eventually finished in that fifth round not really too much to be ashamed about there because tony gravely is a legitimate opponent as well um the shane Moffat fight uh you know, mainly seen that on the ground, eventually gets the arm bar there. And then the Mona Martinez fight, that's a fight that he chooses to take to the ground and then eventually gets a triangle choke. Um, the Elliot Khan fight, that guy was 5'3", obviously at a huge uh, size disadvantage there. And then, um, you know, Draco Rodriguez really showed his size and pressure there as he was able to take him down and just stay on top of him, back mount, full mount, back and forth in that position. And then eventually just ground and pounded to a finish. Probably could have stopped that fight much earlier too, but uh, he was happy to just continue to wail on Elliot there. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to get a, uh, an idea what kind of fighter he is. Uh, I feel like he's going to want to take Eamon down if that's kind of his route to victory. Uh, but we have seen some improvements or hope to see some improvements from Eamon's side there. Now, as a complete fighter, it seems like Eamon is the one that's a little bit a step ahead. But that does also take into consideration that he's almost nine years older than the kid. But I feel like this is going to be more than skill for skill. This is going to be more about who's hungry to be in the UFC. And I feel like Draco, given everything that he's been through uh, to get to this point in time... He's going to be a little bit more hungry, not to mention he's not the one dealing with the huge layoff. Uh, Eamon Zahabi, you know, just had twins, I believe it was about two years ago, which is why he took that amount of time off. I'm not sure why he took out this much amount of time this time, uh, but it seems like he's very happy with being a father. And, and Draco seems like a guy that wants to truly be in the UFC and really take that next step in making a, a name for himself. So, um Personally, I'm staying away from this fight because I feel like uh, a true and full version and confident version of Eamon Zahabi shows up. It's going to be uh, a tough night for Draco. But again, Draco just seems like a kid with a, with some talent. But I truly need to see what we what we get out of him once he gets into the UFC now. So I think this is a great opponent or at least a great matchup for both guys to truly get their feet wet within the UFC again. Or for at least Draco for the first time. Uh, and then for Eamon to really just find his groove if he had ever found a groove in the ufc this is the fight to find it with so go out there beat the young up-and-comer and if he's not able to then it might be time to, to well he's probably going to get his pink slip let's be real he 
He's already on a two-fight losing streak. Obviously, the last one being to Vince Morales, who hasn't really been doing too well in the UFC either. So you got to think that if he loses this fight, it's probably uh, time to walk for uh, Eamon Zahabi. But I'll go with Draco. This fight's going to be a complete pass for me. But I will go with Draco to win this fight via decision. Maybe even a submission later in the fight. But uh, yeah, I I just can't get the the best feel for Draco here. But I will go with him. Uh, Again, this fight is a complete pass. I just don't know what to expect from Eamon, who seems to be the the big variable here as well, too. So once again, I'll go with Draco Rodriguez to win this fight via decision. Chad Skelly versus Jamal Emers. We got minus 240 on Jamal Emers and plus 200 on Chad Skelly. Let's start off with Chad Skelly, who hasn't been in the cage since he went to a decision with Jordan Griffin. I believe that was way back at UFC Vancouver, the same night we had Cowboy Cerrone fight Justin Gaethje. So it's been a while since he's been in the cage. He was scheduled to fight Grand Dawson a couple of times. One time Grant pulls out, another time Chaz pulls out. And unfortunately for him, I believe he tore his ACL or, or something very serious in his knee. So he was out for a little bit. Uh, you know, now he's he's back in the groove, uh, training down there at Sanford MMA, getting in some good rounds. And I think that uh, we'll, we'll see a good account of himself in this fight against Jamal Emers. However, I think he's up for a very tough test here. You're talking about a 35-year-old in Chaz Kelly coming back from a pretty significant knee injury and not to mention going up against a much more athletic just as good if not better wrestler and a better striker overall in Jamal Emers uh, is what we're going to be getting so Chaz Kelly you know looks a little bit uncomfortable on the feet has this weird long lanky frame of his that really helps him out in the in the grappling situations but um, it's truly his striking that needs uh, some work in my opinion and I say that with all due respect you know I mean like maybe he's just not built to, to be much of a striker or even at least get his striking to a level that will allow him to be a little bit more competitive in the UFC so uh, you know his, his grappling is definitely his his strength you know what I mean he has a I believe uh, I'm trying to remember but he is uh, he does have a solid wrestling background, NAIA champion, I believe that it is, or at least level uh, is what he is with a, with, with Chas Kelly. Um, you know, strong in the clinch position as well, too. Um, in the Jordan Griffin fight, very, very fun fight. You know, a lot of reversals, a lot of close submission attempts. But it was usually Chas Kelly, the one, you know, getting the better of the positions. Uh, Jordan Griffin did have some good positions on him, too, not to mention full mount at one point. And I, I think we see the, the cardio of Chas Kelly really start to diminish the later a fight goes as well, too. Um you know, great guy, great wins under his belt, but he's just not been active enough. Like five fights ago, he fought a guy, Maximo Blanco, who hasn't fought in the UFC in forever. You know what I mean? That just goes to show how often Chaz Kelly is truly in the cage. And again, coming off such a significant injury, it's tough to see how he's going to be making improvements to beat a guy like Jamal Emers, who seems to have him beat almost anywhere. I think his only way to really win this fight is if it's continuously in the grappling realm and he gets the better of the scrambles, but I just don't think that's going to be the case here as I believe that Jamal will be the one who's a little bit more explosive and might be able to uh, you know, be a step ahead of him pretty much the entire way. So let's talk about Jamal Emers on the other hand, who's 4-1 uh, in his last five fights. Um, you know, put together a solid uh, amount of work. He was, I believe, on the first season of the Contender Series, and uh, I went pretty heavy on him when he fought Jul- Julian Arosa because when you look on the tape, the guy looks amazing. You know what I mean? Great takedowns, great top control. Is able to kind of just ride out his opponents, do some good grinding, uh, good damage from on top as well too. And then we see him in the in the Julian Arosa fight, first round to a T, just goes out there and does Jamal Emmer stuff. 
Second round, for some reason, he goes out there and turns into a striker and lets Julian Rosa get his game off, and we see Rosa eventually pull off. I believe it was a knockout in that fight. So that one really left a bad taste in my mouth for Emers, as I believe that you know he had a clear path to victory, and he completely ditched it, and then now we saw him pay for it. Even the Hafiel Barbosa fight, we see him kind of striking a little bit more than I wish we thought, uh, than I thought he should have. He still went out there and got a submission victory, but um, you know, it, it seems like if he's able to to hunt or chase his his win condition, which is getting the takedowns against, especially when he's fighting strikers, most notably Giga Chikadze, uh, you know, only two fights ago. If he does that more often than not, more than likely he's going to get his hand raised. You know, in that first round, he completely let it go, let it, let Giga Chikadze get his shots off and that Giga won that, win that round. Then that second round, we see him implement the wrestling. And it was very surprising that Giga was actually able to to reverse the position when uh, Jamal was passing um, and then we see them get back to the feet but that was a very very close round like even if you look on MMA decisions it was like 51% um, for Giga and then 49% for Emers very very close round then in that third round we see Giga start to slow down a little bit and we see the striking start to pay off for Jamal not to mention a very well-timed takedown at the end of the near about like 45 seconds left in the fight so great fight IQ from Jamal there but Again, giving away that first round by not even attempting a takedown was very, very questionable. In his fight against Vincent Cachoeira, I believe Cachoeira, uh, Cachera, Cachero, I should say, uh, came in on short notice, up a weight class, um, and was just significantly outmuscled in that fight. We saw Jamal as a minus 500 favorite, getting the better of the uh, of the striking, but even when he wanted to, he was able to get the fight to the ground to the ground very very easily one of the most uh one of his highlights i'd say it actually came in the giga fight in the second round where he perfectly timed to take down double leg blast double leg gets the fight to the ground and if we see more of that in, from jamal emmers throughout his ufc career i think he could crack crack that top 15 to top 10 mark if we truly see him start to round out his game his striking is decent, you know what I mean? It's good enough, like he throws a variety of strikes. I love his front kick up up the middle that allows his, allows him to keep his opponent at bay and really start to decide what he wants to do with his next move. He's obviously going to have the striking advantage here against Jazz, Jazz Kelly. And again, if it gets into the grappling exchanges, I think Emers might have a little bit of an advantage. You know what I mean? The younger guy, more explosive. Um, I think he has better wrestling credentials as well, too. I might be wrong on that. But uh, again, Chas Kelly coming off a bad injury, 35 years old. It's now or never for him, but I think he's always going to be outgunned when he's fighting guys that are just a little bit younger, just a little bit faster, just a little bit stronger. And I think that's what we're getting here with Jamal Emers. So even if this fight mainly stays on the feet, if we see Chas, you know, desperation takedowns, maybe we'll see Emers actually shuck those off, keep this fight on the feet, sprawl and brawl. You know I mean, go old school Chuck Liddell style, keeping this fight on the feet and then just outstriking Chas from distance. Um, he will be at a one inch height disadvantage, but he will have an uh, inch and a half reach advantage. So we'll see how uh, effectively he can implement that advantage of his. All around, I think Emers wins this fight. I think he's the better f fighter at this point in time. I think he'll be able to keep it on the feet. And even if it does hit the ground, I think he'll be a step ahead of Chas Kelly pretty much the entire way. Uh, but th this is another fun fight. I'm very much looking forward to it. I don't mind Emers as a parlay piece. He might actually end up being a parlay piece of mine for this card. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think he has Skelly beat everywhere here. And it sucks to say, you know, I mean, I'm a Chas Kelly fan.
Uh, I'm a I'm a huge House Skelly fan. Uh, very you know uh, interactive on on Twitter and all that type of stuff. Have talked to him a couple times as well. But I just feel like Jamal is going to have him beat at this point in time. If Skelly was active, you know, what I mean, if he was just coming off that Jordan Griffin win, I'd be a little bit more inclined to not be as much on the Jamal Emmerich train. But I I just am. I just feel like he hasn't beat everywhere. And this is the first time in a while that we're going to see Jamal Emmerich go out there and fight somebody that's not a better striker than him. And I think that's huge for him here, as I believe we'll see him showcase his striking, which I believe should be improved on a fight-to-fight basis. And even if this does get it uh, dragged into the grappling realm, he'll definitely be able to hold his own, and I think he'll be able to come out on top. So I'll go with Jamal Emers, and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Shanna Dobson versus Casey O'Neill. We got plus 125 on Shanna Dobson, and we got minus 145 on the UFC newcomer King Casey O'Neill. And she's who I'll start off with, born in Scotland, but then moved down to Australia, New Zealand area. She's been training there and then recently moved up to Tiger Muay Thai, and she's definitely been getting some time in over there as well, too. So uh, great training for her. She's 5-0. She's had a bunch of amateur experience as well, too. And up until this point, she's, uh, you know, she's finished two out of her five wins. She's shown a good jiu-jitsu game. I believe she has a purple belt at this point in time. But even with her um, with her length and her reach, uh, she's very effective on the feet as well, too. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a reach on her, but she does look like somebody that has a, a decent reach when you watch her fight. She is 5'6". So she's going to be the same size as Shanna Dobson as well, too. Um, her first fight was for a title right off the bat. Her pro MMA debut was... Uh, against uh, Hafizovic, and she won that fight via decision. That's also a fight where, uh, you know, the, they for some reason they had their championship fights three rounds for five minutes, so she didn't go the full five rounds. Anybody who tells you otherwise is just absolutely talking shit. Uh, in her last fight, we saw, saw her again in the UAEW or UAE Warriors uh, fight promotion. That's up there in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I believe that was in Dubai specifically. Um, and she won via KO against Steliu. Uh, I believe it was a, a Greek uh, fighter. But uh, she showed great takedowns in that fight. And she showed great control as well too. Pretty much controlling wherever that fight went. Pretty much just overpowering her opponent. Getting her to the ground. And landing some good uh, strikes. Flowing well as uh, too. Like in terms of um, you know, whenever uh, her opponent would turn over. Trying to you know get full mount or anything like that. She did a good job of like getting their back. Or, or just getting the full mount. Or just always. Uh, maintaining that uh, that dominant position and you can tell that work she's doing over there at Tiger Muay Thai is very much uh, working out for her so I'm very excited to see what she brings to the table now she's only she's 23 years old she's only 5-0 and I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement for her uh, and going up against a girl like Shana Dobson I feel like you're, you're kind of going to the bottom of the barrel um, and, and trying to give her an opponent that's almost catered to her style now shana dobson obviously coming off a very impressive victory over uh maria agapova but she got a really shit on agapova been in that fight given her approach you know she goes out there guns are blazing right off the bat trying to take out shana dobson and when she's not able to she's gassed come that second round and we see shana dobson take full advantage and then follow up and and pretty much win via ground and pound in that fight uh big win for shana dobson comes through as a plus 800 underdog absolutely insane odds there um but uh you know that that was a good win for her but she was coming off a three fight losing streak and it was pretty obvious who they were trying to prop up in that fight given that uh you know there was a lot of hype around agapova at that point in time 
Shana Dobson spoils the hype train. Now here she is trying to spoil another up and up and coming uh, hype train ish. I don't want to call her a super hype train at this point in time, considering that Casey only has five fights, uh, five wins, um, and uh, you know I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But she's only twenty three, so there's a lot of improvements that are yet to be made. So she spent time at Target Muay Thai. Uh, you know, as of late, it seems like she's been over there at Extreme Couture. Um, I believe it was Extreme Couture. Um, but she, you know, she's making the improvements that she needs to. I like what we see from her in the striking realm. She looks clean. She looks crisp. And one thing I I like about her too, and this might be a little bit of an amateur take, but she seems like a fighter. Like she wants to go in there. She doesn't mind getting hit. She likes moving forward. She knows that she she needs to be the one that's moving forward and uh, doing some of the damage. And she has good takedowns. Uh, purple belt in jiu-jitsu as well too. Like I said about uh, said earlier, uh, really helps her kind of control her opponents. And I can feel her kind of taking the same. Approach approach that Sabina Mazzo did in that fight I mean Sabina, Sabina Mazzo primarily a striker as well too known for her head kicks on the on the regional scene and that's kind of what Casey Kenny or Casey O'Neill is like here uh who um I, I feel bad if I've actually been calling her Casey Kenny throughout this uh breakdown but it's Casey O'Neill um but yeah you know mainly a striker but we're seeing uh um small adjustments in her game in her in her recent fights where she has taken the fight to the ground and i think that's where she'll should take this one with shana dobson especially if she wants to be dominant you know what i mean i feel like um dobson's only chance here is kind of catching casey i don't think we'll see much output from shanna and i think that casey could absolutely run away with this fight from pretty much any point that she wants to now I'm not the most keen on betting her at this spot. Again, she's only five and zero, just making her UFC debut. Shanna Dobson's been around for a little bit now. She's fought, uh, you know, the the Mazos, the Muellers, the Cachoeiras, and even the Agapovas. So she's seen the different types of approaches that fighters have. But I just feel like Casey is just much better all around. Um, might still be green a little bit, but I feel like uh, this is a spot that she should she should still go out there and get her hand raised. So I'll go with Casey. I think she wins this fight via decision. I also wouldn't be surprised if we saw her pull off a submission of her own. Um, it does seem like that's a little bit more of her focus in her recent fights. So, yeah, I'll go with Casey O'Neill. I'll say submission, probably second or third round. Uh, gets Shannon Dobson down, really starts to control her, and then maybe we see a submission open up for her. So, yeah, I'll go with Casey O'Neill via submission. Uh, let's go second round. Rafael Alves versus Pat Sabatini. We got minus 185 on the, the contender series alum, Rafael Alves. And then we got plus 165 on Pat Sabatini, who's coming over from the CFFC as the featherweight champion. So, you know, solid uh, feather in his cap to bring over into the UFC. Now, let's start off with the Rafael Alves side of things, where he's coming off that contender series victory, where he pulled off a submission over Alejandro Flores in a fight that was, you know, Flores pretty much trying to stay on the outside, getting pressured by Alves. And it seemed like he was the one throwing the, the, the volume. He had the higher output. And then Alves, every now and then, would just throw out some heat behind some strikes, not really landing with the most brunt on his shots, but was still able to land some good shots. And then we saw, you know, him crash forward with the beautiful uh, lead left hook. And that's where we saw Flores shooting for a takedown, leaving his neck completely exposed. And we see Alves go out there and, and get that guillotine choke. The um, Philippe Douglas fight was another one where, you know, low output from either guy. Seemed like the cardio was catching up a little bit to, to Alves as well. And then we eventually saw Alves land the better 
or, or sorry, the, a beautiful right uh, right on the chin of Douglas and then put him out and he wins that fight as well too. So um, it, it's interesting. He's coming into most of his fights as the underdog. Plus 300 four fights ago. Plus 200 two fight, or three fights ago. Plus 135 against Douglas. And then evens against uh, Alejandro Flores. Now he's coming in as a solid favorite. And again, he was scheduled to fight Mike Trezano on this card. Uh, Trezano pulls out about six or seven days ago. Sabatini jumps in. He's going to be coming on just over a week's notice. But you got to believe that this guy's been ready. He knows that he has a little bit of a win streak going on right now. And given the COVID times, they're probably going to be an opportunity for him to jump in and that's exactly what he got here against Rafael Alves so um yeah Alves again low output uh, a tank of a human uh, I f- suspect that he has some cardio issues if you go over his record you do see a couple second and third round stoppages where he loses uh and I feel like that's something that we could see exploited here by Pat Sabatini Alves uh, jiu-jitsu black belt apparently but we don't really see much of it to the best of its abilities you know what I mean uh, is okay with playing guard but then again isn't the greatest with really you know throwing up submissions or anything like that and he also trains at an MMA Masters you guys know if you guys have been watching me for a while now I love those guys at Masters and those guys usually uh, target the calf kick more often than not guys like Danny Chavez um, Miguel Baeza come to mind but uh, he doesn't do it as effectively as those guys and nor does he seek it as often as those guys as well so uh, you know coming from MMA masters you would expect that but again he doesn't really seek it as often as those other guys that I named prior so what really usually is his win condition right like he goes out there and and gets these finishes and uh, being so low volume I'm kind of surprised that he's able to get these finishes um and and the the finishes actually show themselves Whereas Pat Sabatini, on the other hand, you know, very high-level black belt in jiu-jitsu. Most of his wins coming via submission and KO. Um, two, you know, two straight fights now uh, where he came back off of a very gruesome arm injury against James Gonzalez. Comes back, beats uh, to Tony. That's one that I actually ended up watching live and I didn't realize it was Sabatini up until I watched that one again. But um, if you guys just watch the fight video on Fight Pass, you see him like... You know, they, they cut it off with uh, to Tony on the ground. But I remember, like, that guy was out for a while, like, close to 10 minutes. He took some massive shots from Sabatini there, and he got put out very, very bad. Then we see Sabatini come back and uh, beat uh, Jesse Stern, I believe the guy's name is. Uh, beautiful submission victory, armbar in the second round. But you see, like, right off the bat that that's what he wants to do. He wants to take you down, wants to get his jiu-jitsu game going. And I'm s- expecting this fight against Alves to kind of play out similarly where it's like both guys are going to be grappling but I think the cardio will catch up to Alves which shall which should allow Sabatini to really run away with this fight later in the card or later in the fight that's why I'm kind of intrigued by this round three prop by uh, on Sabatini Currently, it's plus 1,700. I don't have access to it on my bookies yet, but based on best fight odds, it's at plus 1,700. I'd be willing to take a little bit of a flyer on this, maybe 0.1 or 0.2 units, uh, but I think it's a live prop. You know what I mean? Even though Sabatini's coming in on short notice here, I think that, again, this fight will probably play out in the in the grappling realm, as I don't think that Sabatini really wants to stay at range with Alves, considering the amount of power that this guy carries. But also the other um, concern here with Sabatini would be is if he gets outmuscled by Alves, and especially early, right? You want to you want to nullify the amount of threat coming your way early, and for him to do that, he's going to have to clinch up with Alves. I think he'd be, you know, um, 
it would be difficult for him to truly stay on the outside as I believe his best traits are getting on the inside and using his grappling uh, so he's better off trying to clinch up with Alves slow him down suck the energy out of his muscles and then in that later in the second round and third round start to hopefully start landing those takedowns which I think he should be able to and then maybe you know either work in a submission or a ground and pound of some sort as again I do feel that there is significant cardio issues on the Hafiol Alves side so I do like Sabatini I think we'll see him survive that first round I think we'll see this go over one and a half and that's a solid spot as well which has been steamed as of late but the fight doesn't go to decision at minus 140 is not too shabby but the spot that I'm going to be aiming for, I won't be betting Sabatini straight up here. Um, I think Alves is dangerous, like I said. But that plus 1,700, probably plus 1,500 on my sites once I get access to it is a solid spot. I think we could see him weather that early storm, start clinching up with Alves, and then get either a submission or a TKO victory in that third round. Again, there's a lot of unknowns about both of these guys still, especially with them both making their UFC debuts and then Sabatini coming in on short notice. But I truly believe that Sabatini has just been staying ready and just ready to go for anything that drops into his lap. And luckily for him, Rafael Alves has, uh, you know, um, fallen into his lap. Mike Trezano pulls out, Sabatini jumps in. And I think this is a solid spot for him. So as long as he survives that first round, he's got this fight in my opinion. So I'm going Sabatini and I'll go either third uh, third round KO. Let's go let's go third round TKO uh, by ground and pound or something like that. But that's the spot that I'm going to be going with. And that's the spot I'll probably be betting is that round three prop. Julian Arosa versus Nate Landwehr. We got minus 115 on Julian Arosa and minus 105 for Nate Landwehr. So pretty much a pick em fight here. Let's start off on with the Julian Arosa side who's coming off a two-fight winning streak right now. And uh, most notably, uh, his re-entry into the UFC against Sean Woodson on super short notice is successful for him, especially coming in as a plus 400 underdog. So very impressive performance for him there. The first round, obviously, it looks like he gave away to Sean Woodson. The second one, he really started to push it himself, started to get into the face of Sean Woodson, not giving him the space required for Sean Woodson to implement the game that gets him so successful and allows him to pull off the amount of victories that he has. Uh, so good on Julian Rosa for switching it up. And then in that third round, really starting to pursue the grappling advantage that he had in that fight. And then eventually locking up, I believe it was a Darce choke or an Anaconda choke. But beautiful choke nonetheless. He gets the submission victory there and springs the biggest upset on that card as well too. So solid win for him there. What we normally see from Julian Rosa is a striking approach. I mean, he's very long, lanky. He's six foot one with a seventy-four and a half inch reach at one hundred and forty-five pounds, which is very big for that for that division. But sometimes he just doesn't utilize his range to the best of his ability. Like he has a great variety of strikes from like you know, hooks, punches, straights, kicks up the middle. Uh, I, I like the variety that we see from him, and I don't mind the the output as well. I think it's very uh, impressive the amount of volume he's still able to put out there. Um, but he is also very hittable. His striking defense is almost non-existent. You know, I mean, he, he keeps his hands very low, and it seems like more often than not, he 
technically speaking, he probably isn't throwing the best punches, especially his hooks, because he's more whipping them than he's actually like throwing them, which is weird because you see him kind of have it down to his like his chest area, and then he'll just whip his body one way and throw his hooks that way, and you know, it's probably worked out for him more often than not. So I understand why he does it. But if he was able to kind of maybe stand up a little bit taller um, and use his jab a little bit better, he would be a more effective fighter, at least in my opinion. But you're talking about a guy who's coming into his 33rd fight. There's no way you're going to go out there and change a guy in Julian Rosa who's been fighting this way pretty much for the majority of his career. Even with him fighting this way, and if he's the one that's usually going out there and putting the pressure on his opponents, which is what we've been seeing from his you know, Julio Arce fight, the, the, the Sean Woodson fight, especially in that second round, he does pretty well. Like uh, the RC fight, he was the one kind of making that fight a lot closer than it should have been, especially considering that Julio Arce was a minus 800 favorite in that fight. A lot of people like to go out there and fade Julian Arosa and making him uh, be a, such a big dog in most of his fights. Now, this fight against Nate Landwehr, you're talking about Landwehr, who in his last fight, he was a slight underdog to Darren Elkins. Not often you see anybody as a, a as an underdog to Darren Elkins unless your name is Eduardo Garagori. But, uh, you know, that, that was a fight between Landwehr and Elkins where we saw the better technical, well, not better technical hands, but the more damaging strikes from Landwehr come and really, uh, you know, obviously damage the damage in, uh, in Darren Elkins there. Now, I'm very skeptical whether if, if Landwehr didn't open up that cut on Darren Elkins, that was a close fight. You know, I mean, it, it could have gone either way in terms of both guys were like, you know, landing good shots. Um, you got to give the slight advantage to Landwehr, though he was the one landing good shots as well, too. Obviously, landing the damage as well, which is very important in an MMA contest. So, um, and then the uh, Herbert Burns fight. I mean, Burns was the one who was successful right off the bat, moving forward pretty much the entire time, throwing reckless abandon in his shots. Almost landed a uh, guillotine, or sorry, a darts choke. Unfortunately, wasn't able to complete it. Landwehr gets back to his feet, and then once they get back to throwing, slinging them, slinging that heat. We see Herbert Burns land a beautifully placed knee that puts Nate Landwehr out and just absolutely, uh, you know, devastates him and then gets uh, Herbert Burns the victory there. Now, this is a fight that the over-under set at two and a half and the under is, I'm pretty sure it's at a pick and point. And uh, I feel like it's a bit of a trap for the under. Like, both guys seem like they go to war. Both guys seem like they, you know, uh, can be knocked out just as we've seen from Nate Landwehr two fights ago. And then for Julian Arosa, he got knocked out twice in his last three fights. Two of those obviously being in the UFC, right? But I'm not sure how much power either of these guys really carry in their hands. Like the the Landwehr fights over there in M1, he's going out there and just like pushing the pace against these guys and really kind of breaking them. I'm not sure if he'll break a guy like Julian Arosa because I feel like Julian might be the one landing the more landing more shots, landing more volume. Maybe the damage comes from Landwehr, but I feel like we'll see Julian Arosa really implement his teeps, his kicks up the middle, the variety of strikes that he brings to the table. I kind of favor him, and you know if if you take away the knockout possibility for Landwehr which I believe is not as high level or sorry as high of a percentage as most people are putting on it I think we see a, a realm where we see a Rosa go out there and kind of pick apart Landwehr now I'm not saying he's going to do it from distance because again I said he is quite hittable but I think he rolls with shots well enough that he should be able to take the pop off of what Landwehr is throwing his way and again I think Landwehr's knockout power is a little bit over exaggerated and I could also be you know over exaggerating this due to 
you know, betting the under in his last fight against Darren Elkins and not uh, cashing that one. But here against Julian Arosa, Arosa probably has the durability issues, but I feel like he's stylistically the way he matches up with Landwehr in striking battle he should be able to roll out of the way of these big shots I don't think we're going to see a crazy head kick come out of nowhere like Julio Arce did and then I don't think that he has the power of a Devonte Smith either so if you want to be risky like if you ever want to make the riskiest over two and a half bet I think this is the spot however I would have needed much much better odds to pull the trigger on that spot like plus 150 you guys know me I'm not much of an overs better and if I was this would be the spot that I'd be looking at at plus 150 I'd probably not be able to watch the fight considering how chaotic it's probably going to be but I think that the durability of both of these guys will check out was we'll Sierrosa kind of just you know stay on the outside enough to to evade a brawl uh, but still go out there and land the, the more shots, probably the better shots as well too. The damage again might come from Landwehr, but I don't think his uh, output is going to be up as much as as Erosa's here. So uh, again, I like the variety and the versatility of the strikes coming from Erosa, and I think that's going to be the advantage here for him against Nate Landwehr in a fight that I primarily see in the stand-up realm. I don't think we'll see either guy really go for a takedown. If anything, it might be Erosa hoping to pull off a submission of some sort but I think that we'll see this take place on the feet and I think we'll see Arosa go out there and I'll point Nate Landwehr at the current odds I don't want to pick either side I'd rather take plus money on Arosa but I doubt we're going to get that and even if we do you know this fight is highly volatile it could go either way um, but I will be siding with the Julian Arosa side and I think he gets it done via decision. Eddie Wineland versus John Castaneda we got minus 125 on the Sexy Mexi and plus 105 on Eddie Wineland. Let's start off with the UFC veteran and WEC veteran and Eddie Wineland who's coming into this contest as 36 years old with a 24-14-1 and record. He's coming off that loss to Sean O'Malley last time around where we saw Sean O'Malley just absolutely torch Eddie Wineland uh, set up that uh, finish very very impressively and was able to get Eddie Wineland out of there very very impressive uh, performance by Sugar Sean O'Malley Uh, before that we did see him uh, you know kind of just um, rediscover his his glory days going out there and finishing Gregory Popov uh, in his fight I believe that was the second or third round but that was a very impressive performance where we saw him kind of bust him up nice and early and continue to you know add up on that uh, on his strike tally and then eventually put him out late in that fight great performance from him there but we see the same thing from Eddie Wineland over and over again he has that weird herky-jerky style from his orthodox stance he does switch stances every now and then but he's just always all over the place but the majority of his strikes come from his hands throws combinations well at times but more often than not they're one and done and I think when he goes up against guys that are much more well-rounded and have a little bit more output he's in for a little bit of trouble like you see him go out there and lose to guys like John Dodson who are historically pretty low output but given his speed given his variety of attacks he really uh, kind of just rendered Eddie Wineland useless in that fight to be honest uh, and then the Alejandro Perez fight another one where we saw um, an overall performance a great performance from Perez whereas Wineland was pretty much just headhunting the entire time now we saw him complete a couple of takedowns in his fight against Popov but Popov did a really good job in terms of getting back to his feet and then it was just up to Eddie Wineland to get his hands going to secure the victory in that fight and that's exactly what he did 
Now, John Castaneda is quite hittable himself as well, too, but he shows a much better game all around. He shows a game where he's able to go in there, land leg kicks, even in his first round against Nathaniel Wood. Both of them just torching each other's uh, lead legs. But when we have a guy like John Castaneda fighting out of that southpaw stance, it really leaves uh, that body open, that front leg open as well, too. And I'm fully expecting John to go out there and uh, go to work with his leg kicks here against Eddie Wineland. He's going to want to do his best in terms of staying away from the power of Wineland. And as long as that is able uh, to, to, to happen, he should go out there and pretty much just light up Eddie Wineland from the outside. Great combinations, great leg kicks, and then good movement as well too. But again, just staying away from the power is the one thing that he has to worry about in this fight against Wineland. Wineland just always has that to pretty much just bail himself out. Is just landing that big bomb on the chin, and if it's on the right spot, more than likely his opponent is going out. So this is a fight where I could see like John Castaneda winning two and a half rounds, and then Eddie Wineland just lands a big bomb at the end of it, and pretty much just nullifies everything that we saw Castaneda put together in about 12 and a half to 13 minutes. But, you know, I want to give a quick shout out to my guy, AJ MMA Betting, who put out, a, put out an article recently that just said that if we overvalue the standing knockout too much, we kind of put, our, put ourselves away from the guy that is, you know, technically much better and has a lot more tools to win this fight. And I feel like that's what we're doing here against uh, John Castaneda. You got to believe that he does have the better overall game, which I believe he does. And he has a solid amount of experience, even though this is only his second fight in the UFC. So I don't mind what we've seen from him. Um, you know, 17 and 5, that's 22 fights. Now this is going to be his 23rd fight. The guy's been around for a while. He's 29 years old. Uh, he'll be at a slight height and or he'll ha he'll be at a slight height disadvantage, but uh, have about two inch reach advantage here. Now in the fight against Nathaniel Wood, we saw much more variety from Wood and his ability to maintain distance was very important in, for him to go out there and get the win over John Castaneda. Whereas Eddie Wineland here, you got pretty much just one and two to worry about, which I'm talking about his hands. And, uh, you know, I feel like that's a, that's a game plan that uh, John Castaneda should be able to prepare for pretty easily and go out there and get his game going. So I do lean Castaneda here at slight uh, favorite money around that minus 120, minus 125 range. But I still want to see a little bit more from him inside the octagon before I go out there and, and shell out a little bit of money. If you are feeling strongly about Castaneda, I can absolutely understand that, especially given the line that he's currently at. And you know what? The line that I wouldn't mind looking at actually is Castaneda to win via decision. I don't think we'll see Wineland get knocked out here. Castaneda via decision... And you guys know me, I don't like playing overs or via decision lines, but uh, plus 175 for Castaneda to win by decision. That's not a bad line. Historically speaking, Eddie Wineland has been quite durable. So I feel like, um, you know, maybe the, uh, the, the knock is out on him in terms of him getting knocked out by Sean O'Malley last time around. But I don't think that we'll see a guy like uh, Castaneda really be able to generate that type of power to put out a guy like um to put out a guy like Eddie Wineland. Sorry, I was just trying to pull up uh just the the record here of Mr. Castaneda because I wanna I I'm pretty certain the majority of his wins have come via via decision. But I did just wanna confirm that before I'm talking out of my butt. So let me just throw that up. Um John Castaneda, there we go. In terms of his last five though yeah, I mean, the two wins that he has, one coming via submission, one coming via decision, and then all three of his losses that came in that span came via decision as well too. 
So uh, in terms of his wins, we're talking about five of his wins coming by. So he's pretty much an all-around guy. Six knockouts, six submissions, and five decisions. So uh, I, I believe in Wyland's durability still. I think he'll be able to take a shot. I don't think that uh, John Castaneda has that crazy amount of power. So maybe he should go out there and uh, just pretty much light up. Um, pretty much light up uh, Eddie Wineland here. Just want to confirm, yeah, the majority of the losses on Eddie Wineland's record are via decision as well, too. Got knocked out four times, got submitted four times. But again, I don't think John Castaneda is anything crazy when it comes to power. And I think he should be able to keep this fight quite technical. He doesn't want to overextend himself either, as I believe that's where he'll leave himself open to potentially getting finished. And I highly doubt he wants to do that against a guy like Eddie Wineland, uh, again, who's kind of on his way out. And uh, Castaneda really wants to save his job. Going 0-2 right in the UFC is not the best way to go about it. We've seen a couple guys recently, Ali Al-Kaisi, uh, most notably, who comes to mind, who's just gone 0-2, you know, came into the UFC during this COVID era, go 0-2, and, and now they're outside of the UFC. So I'm thinking we'll see a very polished performance from Castaneda, go out there, outstrike Eddie Wineland, and win this fight via decision. Drakkar Close versus Luis Pena. We got minus 170 on Drakkar Close and plus 150 on Violent Bob Ross. Let's start off with the Luis Pena side of things here where he's coming off a loss to Kama Worthy last time around where he came in as a minus 255 favorite. He was actually my lock of the night play that night and unfortunately uh, it seems like his gas tank or something caught up to him. Uh, went for a poor shot. We saw Kama Worthy snatch up that neck and pull home uh, a power guillotine I believe it was and uh, Luis Pena was forced to tap that night. We saw a weird first round where he just wasn't able to get his game going. Kamal Worthy was getting the better of the striking. And then in the second round, we saw Luis Pena get the fight to the ground where he's most dominant. We saw him, you know, a couple of submission attempts, uh, you know, getting full mount, uh, getting the back a bunch of times as well too. Unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to put him out and then paid for it in that third round where we saw Kamal Worthy choke him out. Uh, when he's at his best, we see performances like the Steve Garcia fight, right? Where he gets takedowns, where he's able to get his striking going, where he's able to get his reach going, right? You're 155 pounds, 6'3", 75-inch reach. You're always going to be the bigger, taller guy in the division. It's all about how you implement using that, especially not to mention that he has his wrestling background as well, too. So he's going to want to close that distance as well to get the fight to the ground and really get his game going in that aspect. Jakar Close, on the other hand, you got 5'9", so he's at a, what... Uh, three six inch height height disadvantage as well as a five inch reach disadvantage but Drakkar Close doesn't really care you know I mean the guy goes forward no matter what uh, throws his leg kicks has a decent grappling game I think he has a wrestling background as well too the one unfortunate thing that I kind of broke down uh, about him going into that Benio Darius fight was outside of his UFC debut against Devin Powell He's getting take down, getting taken down in every single fight. You know, Chris, Christos Iagos uh, had his back for a little bit. Benio Dariush had his back for a large amount of time as well, too. However, we saw um, Jakar close defend those positions. You know, he got knocked out by by Benio in that second round. Uh, but that first round was uh, very tough to watch in terms of being a Jakar close backer. Now, he, he fights very close to his opponents, you know what I mean, in terms of the level of opponent and always just having a fight that goes to a decision. The guy is a decision machine, but he has some decent wins under his belt, right? Lando Venata, Bobby Green, even though that was a very skeptical fight given the statistics there. We had Bobby Green outlanded by like 40-something strikes, landed takedown, had a couple, had some uh, control time as well too, yet Chicago Close comes out on the winning end in that fight. And then the, the Christos Iagos fight, right? 
The David Tamor fight gets completely outstruck. Can't really bang on him for that one. That's one where he just couldn't get it going. Uh, he, he chases the calf kick. He's one of those calf kicker guys. Uh, likes likes kind of centering his game around that and again getting his punches and his clinch game going uh, around that as well too. But I find that to be a little bit difficult here to, against Luis Pena, who should be able to you know kind of nullify that. But I, I still have questions about Luis Pena, right? Like. I don't know if it's just a comma worthy fight that just left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, you know, seeing him give up a choke like that was very disconcerting. Um, but a guy like Drakkar Close is just gonna, you know, be very efficient. He's a minute winner, he's a round winner. The guy goes out there, does what he needs to do and and get his game going. And I feel like he'll be able to attack that lead leg of Luis Pena. And you can say what you want about like this, the whole opposite stance thing here. We've seen it numerous times in the past couple of events now where guys that are primarily calf kickers and fighting in opposite stances are still able to get their game going. It's not like they just, you know, they're binary and they just have this robotic thing where they're like, oh God, you know, I can't attack the leg anymore. It's, you know, it's going to have to be for my secondary stance. I think the leg kicks are still going to come and we'll see Drakkar really get his game going around that as well too. Now, Pena, you know, he could still be a dark horse in this division. Like the guy, he's 27 still. He he still has some time to grow, you know, getting some good work. And I believe he's down to ATT now as well too. Um, this, this is a big question mark fight for me. But I got to lean with a guy in Drakkar Close who seems to be a little bit more reliable. You know, I mean, he seems to have a path to victory. You know, seeing Luis Pena lose the way that he did to Matt Favola, close fight, albeit, I feel like we can see a Drakkar Close kind of implement a, not a similar game plan, but at least a game plan that will allow him to replicate something uh, to that effect, but be a little bit more efficient with it as well, too. So I do like the Drakkar Close side here. Uh, I think his decision prop is around plus 100 plus 105 if you're looking to play Drakkar close that's probably the way to go about it i probably wouldn't play the chalk here at minus 170 on close i think um you know i don't think that we'll see him submit luis pena that that submission from Kamalworthy, i feel like was a was a bit of an anomaly you know what i mean like he just got like the perfect positioning uh, Luis Penny was a little bit too desperate with that shot uh, I don't I think we'll see him definitely learn from that mistake um, but uh, Drakkar Close is just a great all-around fighter who should be able to really put his game together you know get that kicking game going and then get his hands going and then just get the clinch and maybe uh, maybe even drop a takedown in there as well now if Luis Pena gets on top that's a different little a little bit of a different story we have seen Close struggle a little bit against guys that are able to get his back and, you know, he does a good job in terms of fighting off submissions. Uh, so I don't think that we'll see Luis Pena get a submission here, but he could give away give away a round here if uh, Pena is successful in getting the takedown and kind of controlling him. So I'll still go with the close side. I think that he'll uh, get his game going a little bit better. Um, maybe not allow Luis Pena to really get comfortable in the striking range because I feel like it's kind of pertinent for... Luis Pena to get comfortable in the striking range uh, for him to really get the rest of his game going. And I feel like Jakar Close just, just does such a good job in terms of kind of nullifying his opponents, um, you know, getting them moving backwards uh, and just letting landing the better output. So I'll go close and I'll go with him to win this fight via decision. But in terms of betting it, I'd probably only approach it from a, a prop betting standpoint, which is taking Jakar Close to win this fight via decision. Jared the Flash Gordon versus Danny Chavez 
We got plus 125 on Jared Gordon and minus 145 on the sophomore Danny Chavez. Let's start off with the Danny Chavez side, who's getting a lot of love, it seems, uh, at least from people that I've been seeing placing the bets on him. And, uh, you know, if you just watch the TJ Brown fight, it makes absolute sense, right? The guy goes out there and puts on an absolute calf-kicking clinic against TJ Brown in that first round and a half or so until we see TJ Brown say, fuck it, let's start to go for it. And then you see him really start to push Daddy Chavez up against the cage and, uh, you know, maybe not get the most amount of success, especially with his failed takedown attempts. But at that point in time, he's already a very compromised fighter. Now, Danny Chavez comes out of that MMA Masters team that has guys like Miguel Baeza and uh, Ricardo Lamas used to be out of there as well too. But one thing that's very evident in their game plan and their approaches with their fighters is the calf kick. Now, a lot of people were kind of giving Miguel Baeza shit regarding his fight against Takashi Sato saying that oh based on their switch stances um you know his calf kick was not going to be uh successful or or it wasn't going to be completely efficient he still proved people wrong just as Chris Gutierrez did last weekend as well too where you you know went up against a switch or an opposite stance fighter and was still able to get his calf kicking game off against Andre Yule. Now, Danny Chavez, I expect him to go and target that right off the bat here against Jared Gordon, who he's going to need to do that to, especially early, given the type of pace and pressure that Jared Gordon normally brings in his fights. You know, he, he seems like a guy that, um, you know, just like Chris Gutierrez, he pretty much uh, builds his game around that calf kicking game and then lets his hands go. But he does seem to have a little bit of a cardio issue, which is why it seemed like his uh, his output how his output was waning a little bit near the ending of his fight with T.J. Brown. Now, there's not a lot of tape available on Danny Chavez. If you guys have access to this tape, then you know by all means send it over to your boy. But personally, I was only able to get uh, tape on his Dylan Calla fight his um, TJ Brown fight, obviously, um, his fight against Anderson Hutchinson, I believe the guy's name was, um, you know, not, not too many. And then even his, um, uh, the highlight of his uh, KO over Pipe Vargas. Now he's getting like first round knockouts over some of these guys on the regional scene. And he did take a couple of decision losses earlier on in his, in his career. Unfortunately, there's just no tape available to uh, confidently say this is the reason that he lost. Now, you see in the Anderson-Hutchinson fight, a fight that I truly believe was a hometown robbery in Danny Chavez's favor. That was a fight where the first round was very close. You could definitely give that to Chavez. But we saw Hutchinson kind of start put the pressure onto Chavez, start to drag him to the ground, you know, get some good control time, land some good shots from on top. And that's kind of Jared Gordon's game. We're talking about a guy, I believe in seven UFC fights, he's accrued about 35 minutes of control time, which is absolutely insane. The guy likes to go out there, uh, you know, stay in your face, push you up against the cage, get a couple takedowns if he's uh, able to, and then just, you know, ride out those positions and really make it a tough, tough time for you. Now, obviously, the Chris Fish Gold fight is not the best fight in terms of finding out how he would do against a guy like Danny Chavez, but at least it's a good sign for him to go out there and get a victory in that division, 145 pounds, and really start to cement himself and get back in, you know, get, get the momentum back in his in his favor. He's gone down to Sanford MMA now from Rufus Sport, and it seems like it's a good move for him, especially for, uh, training with a guy like Henry Hoof who, and Tyron Spong, who obviously is doing a lot of striking uh, for his uh, for that for that team down there. And it's a great approach as well when you're going up against a guy like Danny Chavez, who's going to be uh, targeting that calf kick. You got to believe that these guys have a game plan in store, ready to go for whenever Chavez wants to throw those kicks. And uh, you know, I, I trust nobody other than Henry Hoof to be able to find the 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 code 
to crack that uh, that problem that Danny uh, gave to TJ Brown. Now the issue with TJ Brown compared to Jared Gordon is TJ Brown was just happy and content with fighting at range, at kicking range especially in that first round. And then, and then by the time it clicked to him to start moving forward, he was already a compromised fighter. Jared Gordon, on the, under, uh, on the other hand, is not going to you know just settle in to this fight right at the beginning. He's going to go for it right away. He's going to move forward. He's going to get Danny Chavez uncomfortable. He's going to push him up against the cage. He's going to drag this fight to the ground. And I truly believe with him uh, being a slightly bigger fighter here, one inch height advantage, one inch reach advantage, but I believe that's going to truly come into play here when he's able to push uh, Chavez up against the cage get him to the ground now it looks like Chavez has great takedown defense in his fight against TJ Brown but that's a very poor assessment based on you know the approach that TJ Brown took in that fight he only started attacking that stuff after he was a compromised fighter and later on into that fight Jared Gordon is good to go from minute one to minute 15 the guy is you know he's he he's pressure all the time more often than not he's scoring in the high 100s 180s i've even seen 200 and i believe 12 it was in terms of total strikes that he lands on his opponents because he's just putting a pressure on them and you know they may not be significant strikes but at this point in time they're able to accrue uh you know the, the amount of damage uh the amount of output and uh you know just continuously going uh back to the well with takedowns and pressure and forward and uh forward control now, losing to uh, Diego Fajera, Joaquin Silva, and Charles Oliveira is nothing to really be down about. Those guys have heavy knockout power. And even in his fight, fight against Joaquin Silva, I'm sure he would be the first to admit that he took a very, very uh, poor approach in that fight, especially just treading in the pocket in that third round when both guys were seemingly gassed or were having a little bit of cardio issues. They were just willing to trade in the middle of the cage. And unfortunately for Jared Gordon, he's the one that goes out there and gets knocked out. I'd be highly surprised if we see him go and take that approach in any of his fights coming up now, especially against Danny Chavez here, who seems to have a clear advantage if he's able to get this fight to the ground, which I truly believe he'll be able to. So I think people are reading a little bit too much into Chavez's performance over TJ Brown. And uh, one thing that I want to bring up and shout out to my guy, Scott Shelvach, who kind of tweeted this a couple, uh, about a month ago, is you got to think about when you're breaking down fights, you got to think about the macro, not the micro. And what I mean by that is like, we have so much more to work off of regarding Jared Gordon in terms of uh, what we've seen from him in the cage and what he's able to, you know, when he's successful, what he's able to go out there and do whereas Danny Chavez there's such little tape and we only saw that like you know he's only had that one fight in the UFC against TJ Brown who just brought a piss poor game plan into that fight um that's the micro you know what I mean there's not just there's not so much out there regarding Danny Chavez especially you know leading up to the UFC going out there and knocking these guys out in the first round Jared Gordon is above that level. There's uh, question marks about uh, Jared Gordon's durability, but I just believe, like again, losing to those three guys that I mentioned prior, it's not the worst thing in the world. So um, I'm not 100% in the belief that Donnie Chavez will go knock this guy out, but I believe that Jared Gordon is able to nullify that, uh, that calf-kicking game, get his takedowns going, and get his clinch work going right off the bat. It's going to be a long, long night for Donnie Chavez. So... Uh, I like uh, Jared Gordon here. I already pulled the trigger at plus 120. I think he's a solid spot. He's a reliable fighter, especially against guys at the level of Danny Chavez's. Um, and I think uh, we can lump him in with the Dan Moret and the Chris Fishgolds. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that we're going to see a new and reinvigorated Jared Gordon, especially with him being down there at Sanford MMA. He's already want to know uh, with his fight with Chris Fishgold. Now I'm hoping that he'll make it 2-0 coming through as an underdog and i think he has the perfect game plan to do just that so i'll take jared gordon to win this fight via decision
Andrei Arlovsky versus Tom Aspinall. We got plus 220 on the Pitbull Andrei Arlovsky and minus 260 on um, Tom Aspinall. And this is a very intriguing fight as we've seen this new era in Andrei Arlovsky's career where he's able to take some shots, uh, going out there and, you know, turning away young upstarts like uh, Tanner Bozer in his last fight, coming in as a plus 320 dog. And this is a similar position here where he's coming up against a guy that, you know, um, you know, 27-year-old Tom Aspinall wants to go out there and make a name for himself. And easily, this is the biggest fight that he's ever had in his career. Now, with Andre Arlovsky, we saw him go out there and outpoint Tanner Bozer. We saw him go out there and outpoint Philippe Linz in the fight before that. And then, obviously, the fight before that against Jorginho Rosenstrike, he gets absolutely deaded. Now, since 2017, we've only seen him knocked out twice by Francis Ngannou and Jorginho Rosenstrike, who, in my opinion, are the two of the heaviest hitters in that division. If you want to go to top three, we can throw Derek Lewis in there as well, too. Like, it's going to take a monumental... Uh, type of punch to put this guy out nowadays it seems like and it's crazy to think like we're, we're 10 years removed from when a lot of people were just questioning his chin and thinking that okay this guy just has nothing left in the tank you know he should hang it up and now here he is at 42 years old still chugging along still cashing as a plus 155 a plus 195 and a plus 320 in his last uh you know four out of or three times out of his last four fights um the Augusto Sakai fight, very close fight, loses a split decision there. Like, he's still going out there and having very competitive fights. And people can say what they want about, like, oh, you know, you can't really trust anybody over 40 years old. But heavyweight just has, like, a later time frame that guys can be successful in. You know what I mean? 42 is kind of like the 36, 37 of, uh, of a welterweight or something like that, right? Or, or even a middleweight if you want to take it that far. These guys can get away with being older at these uh, at these heavier divisions because they don't have as have as uh, as much to worry about as as the guys in the the smaller divisions when it comes down to you know having their speed athleticism uh power and all that stuff to to rely on whereas you know you can get away with just being doing enough to get by which is what Andre Lovsky has been doing now his fights against Asp or sorry against uh, Bozer and Linz have been slightly uh on the lower output side but he's still going out there and making a good account of himself I think we, we still see some good things from Arlovsky. And another thing that a lot of people kind of overlook here is he's just criminally uh, just seen as this guy that's super uh, undersized. Like the guy's six foot three with a 77 inch reach. He's a big dude at this division, and it definitely allows him to have some success when he gets there and, and inside the cage. Great uh, training camp that he's with as well. American top team they've seen to rejuvenate his career. Uh, you know, give him some good things to work with. And he still goes out there, puts together solid combinations. There's always those little instances where I hope that he goes out there and throws a little bit more, which should give him a more decisive victory. But luckily for him, he's still riding on a two-fight winning streak at this point in time. Now he's going up against Tom Aspinall, who's just been fighting absolute scrubs up until this point. You know, I mean, the, the, if you want to talk about five fights ago, he's fighting a guy, I think his name was Kareem uh, Basilic or Kamal Basilic. The guy was 43 at the time with a 3-7 and seven record. You know what I mean? Uh, completely undersized. You can see from prior pictures, the guy's just not a heavyweight. He just absolutely blew up and uh, took on that fight with Tom Aspinall. Uh, the the Buki, Buki Chow fight. I'm absolutely butchering, butchering that guy's name. The guy loses that fight uh, due to like an Anderson Silva type shin injury. Uh, the fight before that, Ben Hamoudi. That guy did not look comfortable at all on the feet. And he only came into that fight with a 2-0 record and then has not fought since that fight. So he ends his career at 2-1. Jake Collier, first fight back. 
60 pounds heavier whatever it is uh tom aspernall obviously has the speed hand speed advantage there uh and has some decent power in his hands too so he's able to put jay collier on his face and uh get that finish there and then the alan bodu fight man that complete just absolute mockery of a fight i mean the, I, if i'm not mistaken badu was coming off that fight where they have him as a win but he actually lost that fight and the the quebec commission had given him a win uh uh, because his opponent Todd Stout had tested positive for marijuana it makes absolutely no sense that fight should be a no contest if anything however you can truly weed out the uh, the wiki cappers if you want to call it that by saying that Alan Baudu actually won that fight by rear naked choke if you go back and actually watch that fight that guy lost that fight via rear naked choke but it is what it is that's a good little tip in terms of if you want to go back and watch some of these guys uh, who are breaking down these fights and if they give you that nugget that he actually won that fight against todd stout you can weed him out call him out if you want as well so up until this point tom aspinall has just been fighting guys that are nowhere near the level of andre arlovsky even at arlovsky at 42 years old my question marks is does Tom Aspinall have the knockout power of a Jerzy Rosen strike? Does he have the knockout power of a Francis Ngannou? Or even a Derek Lewis? Yeah, I mean, that's what it's going to take, in my opinion, to knock out a guy like uh, Arlovsky. Now, the hand speed of Aspinall does uh, worry me a little bit, as I do think that could potentially be another deciding factor as to uh, how he finishes Arlovsky. But based on what we've seen off of tape, I don't think he deserves to be a minus 260. I mean, there's been so many instances over the last several months now where these newcomers come into the UFC, all first-round knockouts, all first-round finishes, and then they just, you know, get extended and they just look like absolute garbage. Um, the, the two times we've seen Tom Aspinall go into the second round, he's lost. Albeit one of them came via legal elbows, so I'm sure that, you know, I, I just don't... I'm not privy uh, to that fight footage, which is why I can't really see how that second round looked. And then the fight, uh, the other fight that went into a second round, he lost to a guy named Stuart Austin. That was a fight where the majority of that second round he was spending on his back, did a good job in terms of reversing position, doing some good damage and having his opponent turtle up. But he kind of spends himself and we see his opponent uh, roll for a heel hook and we see almost no resistance from Tom Aspinall there. I'm assuming that he had a cardio dump or something like that. And we see him immediately tap to a heel hook. So given what we have historically speaking, it's very tough to say that, okay, if Aspinall gets out of the, or if, Ar if Arlovsky gets out of the first round, Aspinall should still go out there and piece this guy up for 15 minutes. Historically speaking, it looks like he slows down. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm almost uh I I feel like I need to take a shot on Arlovsky here, whether it's a, a 0.5 unit stab or a one unit stab, but at plus two twenty, I think that line line is a little bit crazy. Like we're just basing this solely off of the potential of Tom Aspinall and hypotheticals rather than actual things that we've seen inside the cage. And what I've seen inside the cage so far is that Andre Arlovsky's chin has been able to hold up against some of these heavier strikers that he's going up against. Tai Tuivasa, Ben Rothwell, Philippe Linz has some solid power in his hands. Tanner Bozer coming off a knockout victory of his own. Um, if his chin is holding up against some of these guys, you know, I, I don't know. Like Aspinall could have that power, but he needs to go out there and prove it against a legitimate opponent. And I would at this point in time think that Orlovsky is his toughest test to date. So if he can go out there and knock him out, I'll be a little bit more of a believer of Aspinall. But again, if he gets it done in the first round, there's still question marks in terms of when this fight, when his fights do get extended. 
And now he's going up against a vet who's seen it all. I, I gotta side with Arlovsky, man. I can't I can't bring myself to to bet a, a young up and comer at minus two sixty who just hasn't proven anything legitimately inside the cage yet. And even him and uh, you know in his knockout victory of Alan Baudu, he's like you know that wasn't a good performance. He he expected better of himself, which is great. You know that's a great um, mental space that a young up and comer fighter should be in. But that doesn't necessarily mean that okay, you know that it's still gonna uh, cover that he has the cardio to go 15 minutes or that he'll be able to keep up with uh, Andre Arlovsky or try to even catch him. Uh, based on the metrics, I think that these might be slightly off, but based on the metrics, we have 6'5 uh, for Tom Espinosa, so you'll have a 2-inch height advantage, and then you'll have a 1-inch reach advantage as well too. Again, it's it's not been too long since we've seen him really uh, huffing and puffing a little bit in that second round, and then again, just giving up a heel hook without much resistance at all. It just stands out too much to me. I'm not saying that Arlovsky's going to go out there and heel hook this guy, but I do think that Arlovsky has a much better chance of the, than that plus 220, especially if Tom Aspinall doesn't get him out of there in that first round. So I'm not backing the newcomer here. I'm going to back Arlovsky. Say what you want about a 42-year-old at this point in time. Again, heavyweight is a different monster when you're talking about age. And uh, I, I think that Arlovsky is live to, to give this kid uh, a veteran lesson. So I'll go with uh, Arlovsky and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Another spot that might be uh, you know nice would be the over one and a half. That line is not currently available at the time of taping this recording. Uh, but uh, yeah, if this fight does find itself past that one and a half round mark, I have a lot of questions about what we're going to see from Tom Aspinall. So I'll go with Arlovsky. Plus 220 is just too nice to pass up. I wouldn't be surprised if that line got even wider come fight week. Uh, but yeah, I'll go Arlovsky and I'll go with him to win this fight via decision. Nasardin Imovov versus Phil Hawes. We got minus 160 on Phil Hawes and plus 140 on Imovov. Let's start off with the Imovov side of things. He's coming off a victory over Jordan Williams last time around where he came in as a minus 140 underdog. And that's a fight that I remember distinctly due to the fact that I don't remember much about uh, Imovov or at least I wasn't able to actually uh, gather enough information regarding Imovov due to the uh, lack of um, uh, footage that was available of him before this Jordan Williams fight. Luckily, we were able to go out there and get 15 hard minutes of Imovov tape uh, against Jordan Williams and uh, still feel like there, there's a little bit more that we need to find out about this guy to see how good he actually is. He's 9-2, same record as Phil Haas. He's 24 years old, so he still has some time to grow. Uh, and he has a solid frame at 6-3 with a 75.5-inch reach. Um, I think he could be a very interesting prospect in this division uh, if he can truly round out his tools. Now, he's training over there at the MMA factory in France. I believe his coach's name is uh, something Ferdinand. I can't remember his first name, uh, or that actually might be his first name. But uh, he is famous for training most of those French fighters. Taylor Lapalus, Czech Congo. I think he started with Francis Ngannou before Ngannou decided to come over to the States. Uh, and then I also believe he's trained with uh, Cyril Gan as well, too. But uh, Imovov is a completely different guy compared to those last couple names that I've thrown out there. His nickname is a Russian sniper, which is weird, given that this guy comes from a French uh, French background. Um, regardless, you, you kind of see it in his fights because he, he stands kind of tall, uh, uses his range very well, and his jab right down the middle is a very, very sharp uh, strike of his. 
Uh, he does have good chokes as well, too. He showcased a couple of them against Jordan Williams, but wasn't really able to get the finish there. However, it could definitely come into play in this fight against Phil Hawes, who has shown to slow down later in fights. Now, we haven't really seen Phil Hawes push later in fights as of late, uh, with him having, um, you know, finished a couple of his last uh, last opponents. Um, you know, obviously, uh, the, the Bestaya fight and the Jacob Malcolm fight, both, both fights, uh, well, the the best I have fight, obviously, in the contender series and the Malcoon fight back at UFC 254, I believe it was. Um, we saw him go out there and get the job done pretty quickly. Against Bestaev, it was a minute and 10 seconds. Against Malcoon, it was 30 seconds. And then um, the, the only footage, so there wasn't footage available for the Fraga fight or the Schober fight, but the Michael Wilcox fight, that's a fight where you saw go the full five minutes, and it looked like a headbutt that it actually opened up that cut of uh, Wilcox. However, they ruled it uh, a legal strike. It was a right hand that came over the top as well right before that inadvertent headbutt. Uh, but regardless, Phil Hawes come out, comes out with the victory. He's only been to the second round, let's see, He's been to the second round four times in 13 fights, or sorry, in 11 fights. Uh, he won his first two, uh, which were his first two fights of his career, of his professional career. And then the next two fights, which were his fifth and sixth fights, uh, fifth and sixth pro fights, both of them went into the second round and he got finished in both of them. Now, I feel like this guy is a one and done guy in terms of, uh, you know, having enough gas tank in that first round uh, to go out there and land big shots and possibly get a takedown and do some good ground and pound. However, that second round is where the, the drop-off starts to begin. The power doesn't come as, as heavy as it does. The, the the speed isn't there as much as it is in that first round. And that's where the, the concerns are. Now, we haven't seen him in that second round since uh, 2017, so it's been a while. And he's jumped around camps as well, too. His last loss was against Julian Marquez on the Contender Series. And at that time, he was, uh, you know, the, the best-kept secret, per se, of... Um, uh, of Jackson Wink, you know, worked a lot with John Jones. That was one of the main things, especially like when they tried getting him into the Ultimate Fighter. I believe he lost to Andrew Sanchez. I could be off on that, uh, but he didn't even make it into the house. Then he goes on to the Contender Series for the first time, gets knocked out in the second round by Julian Marquez, and then the next time he comes around finally and gets that victory over Bestayev, not before putting together three straight victories uh, after beating or after losing to Julian Marquez, then comes into the the Contender Series, gets that knockout, gets to take it to the UFC and gets a quick 30-second knockout. But th there's not so much that you can take from these types of fighters. Like um, Punahale Soriano, uh, outside of that one decision victory that he had against uh, Jamie Pickett, there wasn't much to really go off of. Like the guy's going out there and just starching these guys. And that's not really what you want to be betting on because you're just always betting on these guys to go out there and get the finish. The perfect example that I'd like to bring up, uh, at least most recently that's come up, is the Louis Kosi fight where he's not able to get that first-round finish, and then Sasha Palatnikov goes out there and finishes him in the third round. Um, I don't know if Phil Haas has truly made those improvements in the cardio realm. Like, we, we, we just haven't seen it. So you can't say, yes, he's going to have better cardio. I mean, we need to go see him go out there and do that. I like the approach that he took in the Bestaya fight with implementing uh, that lead leg kick, that calf kick specifically, to really get Bestaya thinking about that and then kind of flinching on that and then coming over with the big overhand, which was eventually the downfall of Bestaya in that fight. Um, another thing about Phil Haas is 
he seems to have changed gyms quite often. So like I said, he started off uh, mo- most recent, or he started off, or at least he's known for being the, the best kept secret at Jackson Wink. Uh, then after his Julian Marquez fight, he went over to Bellator and you saw Tiger Shulman in his corner. So he moved over there to, I believe it's the New York and New Jersey region that the Shulman brothers are at. And uh, he, he had a couple of fights with them, I believe. I, again, I wasn't able to track down the tape on his Brave CF fights or his, uh, yeah, his Brave CF fights, so I wasn't able to see who's in the corner there. But then you see him go uh, against uh, Bestaev in the Contender Series. Uh, you know, th- this was just in September of this year, and he has uh, Sanford MMA guys in his corner. Now you're seeing, um, you know, uh, on his Instagram as well, he, he's mainly training over there at Sanford MMA. But roughly about three weeks ago, he actually went over to, uh, to Switzerland to train with Volkan Uzdemir with his gym over there. So I think he just wanted to, like, get on to that side of the world, get on kind of, you know, a similar uh, time zone and clock uh, by being over there in Europe, closer to Abu Dhabi, rather than being down in Florida. Uh, and he still has some of his guys over there that he mainly trains with at Sanford, mainly Volkan Uzma being one of the guys that I was able to spot. Uh, I'm certain, obviously, his Sanford uh, MMA coaches are going to be coming over closer to the time of the fight. Uh, but he's been spending, like I said, the last three weeks. Uh, right now, it's January 3rd. So we're talking about another about two weeks before the fight's actually supposed to happen. So all in all, he's going to be have he's going to have been over there for a solid five weeks, which I think is very beneficial for him to not have to deal with the jet lag and, you know, crossing the pond uh, during a weight cut and, and, you know, all the nerves that he has to deal with going into to to, to the fight uh, week and all that type of stuff so i think uh, he's he's stacking the chips in his favor and this is the great this is a great way to do it now uh, i've always talked about uh, phil haas being a fadeable fighter because i think he truly is around one or bust kind of guy and i kind of overextend myself by taking the heavy underdog odds on jacob malcuna last time and i paid for it almost immediately that guy got put out within 30 seconds i don't know if imavov is that guy uh, I, I wanted to find a reason to buy uh, to bet Imamov here, especially as a as a dog, a plus one forty dog. But I feel like I need higher or better odds to actually uh, you know stretch out and actually make that bet. Um, Phil Hawes on the other end, I still don't feel comfortable enough betting him at that minus one sixty range. The spot that you do want to hit if you are liking Phil Hawes is him to win inside the distance at plus one hundred five, or even him to win by KO, which I believe is around that plus one twenty five, plus one thirty range. I think that's the spot that you want to hit. I just don't see him winning a decision again. The the cardio issues are too much of a, a of a flaw for me to overlook, and that's not the type of guy that I want to have my money on, especially if I'm not uh, that confident in him being able to you know fight in the sixth to fifteenth minute mark if it ends up going there. Uh, so I do like Haas here. Um, I couldn't, uh, you know, side with Imovov after running the tape. He is hittable. Um, you know, I, I think that lead calf kick that we saw Phil Haas implement in his Bestia fight that could come in uh, into come in handy here against um, uh, against Imovov, as I believe that Imovov will have a three inch height advantage. However, Phil Haas does have the reach advantage here. However, you can still see guys taking advantage of the height. Um, discrepancy and using that as a defensive mechanism in terms of kind of leaning back and getting out of the way of shots. That's why I think Phil Hawes has, has kind of chosen the route of just chewing up that lead leg, letting his opponent kind of just focus on that first and then bring the fight back up to, to the head and, and really start, uh, you know, landing the damage there and hopefully getting these guys out in that first round. So I'll go with Phil Hawes to win this fight via first round of KO. Not the most confident in it, as I believe if this does see the second round, it could get iffy. So maybe a good live betting opportunity as well because Phil Hawes will more than likely win that first round. Um, 
Another angle that I just want to quickly throw out there is um, with with Imovov, that choke that I was talking about, if Phil Hodge starts sucking win in that sixth uh, or that second round and that third round and Imovov tries to pull off that type of choke uh, like he tried against Jordan Williams and as he's been successful with in his past uh, fights, uh, I think it could get very hairy for Phil Hawes as I don't think he'll have as much explosion and ability to get out of those bad positions that Jordan Williams was in. And Jordan Williams was sucking wind himself too. And I feel like Phil Hawes might have a worse gas tank than that. Again, if he hasn't improved it, and I'm just basing it off of what I've seen up until this point, and that's all we have to work with. So, uh, But I still think that we won't end up seeing that second round. I think Phil Hawes is the right side here in terms of... Uh, you know, him getting that first round KO, and that's the side that I'm going to be going with. Again, not sure if I'll actually make an official bet on it, but in terms of, of a prediction, I'll go with Phil Hawes to win this fight via first round KO. Alexei Olenek stepping into the cage for the 75th time, going up against young up-and-comer Chris Adoukis. We got minus 175 on Chris Adoukis and plus 155 on the boa constrictor Alexei Olenek. Now, this seems like a pretty straight up fight in terms of how to break it down. You got Chris Dalkis making ever uh, making an ever improving game with his striking game, um, and then you got uh, the ball constrictor Alexio Linick going in there with his jujitsu game that pretty much holds well for the majority of his career. We'll start off with Alexio Linick, who's coming off that loss to Derek Lewis last time around, where he was on the peak or on the on the cusp of getting his hand raised in that first round after he just continuously kept going after a scarf hold against uh, Derek Lewis. Uh, you know, not sure why he was so confident in thinking that that's the way he would get the tap, but there were just so many opportunities for him to pass the full mount to get the fight in a position that would be more likely to get a finish, but for some reason he thought he was going to get the scarf hold. Um, then second round comes Derek Lewis says fuck it throws all the bombs at Alexi Olenek and then eventually puts him out I believe 27 or 21 seconds into that second round um very unfortunate loss there for Alexi Olenek as also at the end of the first round he was very close to locking up that key lock and if he had maybe another 15 20 seconds he probably could, could have pulled that uh submission off and he might be the one on the three fight winning streak right now that possibly could be in a headlining spot before that we saw him go out there and beat uh Fabrizio Verdun via split decision that's a fight that I believe pretty much everybody and their mother was on the under and the fight doesn't go to decision and possibly even Fabrizio Verdun, considering that uh, Alec Alexi Olenek was a, a plus 250 dog going into that fight. He springs off the upset, shows off his durability, shows off that don't give a fuck striking attitude that a lot of these jiu-jitsu high-level guys uh, go out there and pull. You know I mean, Hani Yaya, the, the Gilbert Burns, the Pedro Munozes, the guys just go out there and throw heat in their hands and don't really care whether they get taken down or not because they know they're even better on the ground. And even if it's them on their back, they will find a way to get on top of you or at least sink in in submission. So he did that against Fabrizio Verdum. He was the one pushing the praise. He was the one, uh, you know, really pushing it, really getting his strikes off. Fabrizio Verdum did get him down a couple times, but we did see Olenek find his way back to his feet, and he eventually got away with the split decision victory there. And then before that beats another, not young guy in Marie's screen, but another uh, inexperienced fighter in Marie's screen, uh, finishes him via armbar close to the ending of that second round. Now, this is a tough test for him in Chris Dalkis, who shows an ever-improving game on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. We've only seen him in the UFC twice now, but uh, in between those two fights, we've seen like massive amounts of improvements. Even uh, in between his uh, last CFFC fight and his fight against Parker Porter, which was his UFC debut, you see a slimmer Chris Dalkis. You see a faster-handed 
Chris Daukis and you see him go out there and knock out Parker Porter in the first round and then you see him knock out Rodrigo Nascimento within 45 seconds. Now let's just look at the I, I want to I'm harping on the weight here because that's something that we've seen uh, very different about Chris Daukis in his last couple of fights. So he comes in in his last CFFC fights against Danny Holmes comes in at 256 against Parker Porter he comes in at 241. Uh, four months after that, he fights again, and he comes in at 227. And I think that's the weight that we're kind of going to see him at now. And that's kind of what we saw Cain Velasquez at as well, too. That was kind of his optimal weight was between like 225 to 240, or even 240 was too high, maybe even 235 at times. And I think this is a solid uh, range for a, a heavyweight. You know, between 220 and 235, I think, is the sweet spot, especially if you have the advantage when it comes to the striking realm. And that's exactly where I think he has here against Alexio Linick because it helps him with his mobility helps him with his speed and it seems to almost help with his power because he's able to generate a little bit more and uh you know add the speed into it and his precision uh it's going to cause a lot of fighters trouble here now the, the the just on the the surface this seems like a optimal spot to go out there and bet Chris Daukis, uh especially via knockout uh given the the slow or at least the speed advantage that he's going to have here over old man Olenek my qualm is though is we've seen Olenek eat shots we've seen him move forward we've seen him clinch up against guys and I think that could uh you know give Chris a little bit of trouble here maybe he push him up against the cage maybe he pulls guard or maybe he lands a takedown or something like that right I need to see a little bit more from Chris especially at this level before I can bank on him to you know cash as a minus 170 favorite I wouldn't be surprised if we do see some Olympic money come in d- during fight week. So I'm just going to sit back and see maybe we get a, a minus 150 crystal kiss or even minus 140 crystal kiss because I do absolutely favor him here. And I do think his hand speed and his boxing is going to be a little bit too much for Olympic. You know, if you look at the technical aspects of Daukis's game too, he does a good job in terms of just pivoting off every time he throws his combination. He had this beautiful finishing sequence against uh, Parker Porter where he throws a one-two, pulls his punches back, lets Parker Porter whiff, and then he comes back with a one-two, follow up with the hook, and just a barrage of strikes that just lands bing, bang, boom all over uh, Parker Porter, and then he eventually finishes him with a brutal knee, uh, which Parker was just not uh, anticipating at all. So beautiful performance there, beautiful debut on the UFC scene for Chris Delkis. Then in the Rodrigo Nascimento fight, we see him land a beautiful overhand, uh, kind of rocks and drops Nascimento. He follows up with a bunch of shots. We see Nascimento get back to his feet, and then he just puts it on him once again and absolutely dusts him. I believe that's a fight he came in as an uh, underdog as well. Yeah, plus 205 dog there as well. A lot of people thought that Nascimento would be successful in the game plan that Olenek will probably bring into this fight, which is swarm uh, Chris Delkis, try to get him to the ground and try to pull off a submission. But we saw great awareness from Delkis that entire time, and he landed the perfect shots that he needed to get Nascimento out there within 45 seconds. Olenek, I feel like, is going to be a little bit more durable. However, I do think that the knockout is very live here for Chris Delkis. I'd consider the under one and a half depending on what the odds are as I do think that both guys are live for a finish here whether it's Olenek getting Delkis down and pulling off a submission as we've seen Delkis submitted back 
2015 against Sean Teed via Americana. However, I gotta believe that Dalkis has definitely made some changes, not to mention physically as well too. Uh, within six years, and he's 31 years old now, you gotta believe that he's truly made improvements and uh, done a good job in terms of being able to keep fights on the feet now. So I do favor Daukis. I do think that he gets the knockout. I do think that he puts away old man Olenek, but I need a slightly better price to be uh, convinced on making a play here. Now, if this was, you know, Manpreet of December or Manpreet of early January, I would probably consider making Chris Daukis the lock of the night play here. However, I've promised myself that I need these fighters to be a little bit more proven before I go out there and shout out the big bucks and make them a lock of the night play. With that said, I'd still be comfortable with putting at least 1.5 to 2 units here on Daukis as I do believe his hand speed will be a little bit too much for Olenek to keep up with. And, you know, before Olenek knows that he's going to be on the ground, you know, eating 5 or 6 shots and, uh, you know, Daukis will do a really good job in terms of landing his shots getting out of the way and maybe the small cage is not going to play in his favor in terms of uh you know with him backing up and trying to stay away from Olenek he might find himself up against the cage Olenek uh clinching up against him maybe pulling guard maybe pulling guard with his Ezekiel or something like that but uh, I need to see a little bit more experience from Dalkis before I can bang on him uh especially against a guy like Olenek who's seen just so many different types of fighters you know, turned away so many young upstarts, and uh, Dalkis definitely falls into that category as well too. So, Aline Dalkis, like I said, I think he gets the knockout here. I'd I'll either consider a Dalkis play straight if he uh, lands around that minus one fifty range, or the under one and a half, as I believe both guys uh, will finish this fight uh, and possibly finish it early as well too. Like if it, if this fight goes past that first round, I think it's going to be Dalkis who just his hand speed just catches up to Olenek and he puts him out. And, you know, some people might refer to the Verdum fight as that went full 15 minutes. But you got a kid here in Dalkis who's trying to make a name for himself, who's uh, a little bit more cerebral at this point in his career. And I do think he's a little bit more live to get a finish than we saw in that um, Olenek and uh, Verdum fight. So all in all, I got Chris Dalkis here. I think he gets the first round knockout as well, too. And uh, yeah, Dalkis via first round KO. Charles Rosa versus Derek Minner. We got minus 185 on Charles Rosa and plus 160 on Derek Minner. And I can't wait for this fight. It makes absolute sense as to why the UFC has placed this fight third from the top on the main card considering the amount of finishes both of these guys go through in their fights and how exciting they are whenever they do actually step into the octagon. So let's start off on the Charles Rosa side of things who's coming off a victory over Kevin Aguilar. He's been flip-flopping wins and losses over his last five fights, uh, but his Aguilar fight was a great uh, showcase of what it looks like when he just strictly goes for his uh, striking route. Um, you even see it in his fight against uh, Shane Burgos uh, four fights ago, and even though he lost that fight, that was a close fight, a lot closer of a fight than people expected it to be, especially with it playing out on the feet for the most part. Now in the Kevin Aguilar fight, we know what Aguilar brings to the table. You know, he, he likes to trudge forward, really throw his hands and get his boxing game going. And that's pretty much where it stops for Aguilar. Great takedown defense as well, too. So he's really good at sprawling and brawling. But with the Charles Rosa fight, that was just a very difficult fight for him to truly grasp how to approach Charles Rosa, given the uh, distance management that we saw from Charles Rosa in that fight. You know, 
when he's in his uh, orthodox stance, you see him really uh, implementing a full kickboxing game, uh, a little bit more of a kickboxing stance from him. But then when he switches to his uh, southpaw stance, you see a little bit more of that Wonder Boy type thing. And they kind of even called it out in his last fight in that third round where you see uh, or where you hear his corner saying, you know, let's let's get that Wonder Boy going. It's really frustrating Kevin Eigler. And he's right. You know what I mean? Like when he's in that southpaw stance, he's throwing great kicks, uh, great lead kicks. Um, and then he really blitzes forward uh, with his left hand down the middle uh, and, you know, just covers so much distance and, and is so quick with it as well, too, that was just giving Kevin Aguilar a ton of problems. Now, he dropped that first round and then he was able to win the next two. But we saw what it looks like when Charles Rosa is really able to get his tr striking game going. And that was very, very impressive on, on his part. The fight before that, obviously, we know he got completely dismantled by Bryce Mitchell, just ragdolled in that fight. And the only thing that you can really take away from it is the fact that he did not end up getting submitted in that fight. You know, there were so many close opportunities for Bryce to pull it off, but Charles Rosa gutted it out and got through all of those positions, which showcases his black belt in jiu-jitsu as well, too. Obviously not the greatest look when you're getting ragdolled that much, and I believe there were a couple of 30-25 scorecards in there, but that is also in a testament to how strong and how good Bryce Mitchell is as well. Now, uh, the fact that he was able to submit a guy like Manny Bermudez in that fashion was very, very impressive, as I believe that Manny Bermudez is one of the best jiu-jitsu guys that have touched uh, foot in the octagon. Obviously, Bermudez not in the UFC anymore, but I think that's a more of an attribution to the fact that he just could not make weight. Funny enough, you know, Manny Bermudez gets cut in fights, I believe, a weight class or two above uh, what he used to fight at in the UFC and still missed weight. So, uh, but yeah, the, the fact that Charles Rosso was able to pull off the submission in that fight, especially coming in as a plus 160 dog there, very, very good for him. It's funny that his last two wins, he is coming in as a plus 140 to plus 160 dog, and he usually cashes at that, at that mark. Now here against Derek Minner, you're talking about Derek Minner, who, you know, in my opinion, first round sub or bust. And I truly mean that. I believe 21 of his 25 victories have all come in the first round. 22 out of 25 of his victories have come via submission the guy's only been to a decision three times in his career absolutely insane you're talking about a guy who has 36 overall fights now if you throw in charles rosa's record in there as well too you're talking about 45 out of 53 combined fights have gone under two and a half or have just not gone to a decision and i think that's a very very good statistic especially when you're getting a minus 160 line on the under two and a half and that's gonna be my approach for this fight i expect uh, Charles Rosa to sustain or, or survive whatever Derek Minner throws at him in that first round and then we see the drop off and the work of Derek Minner especially in that second round the guy just goes balls to the wall in the first round and if it doesn't pay off for him you know again it has paid off for him 22 out of 25 times but when you start going up in competition you f start fighting other black belts and bjj and guys that are just as good and just as savvy in terms of staying out of submissions then his production and his his quality of work really starts to diminish in that second round which is where we'll see charles rosso really start to take advantage and i think you are going to see him uh submit or even knock out uh derek minner but i see this fight mainly playing out in a grappling realm i think both guys are going to be willing to engage in that i think they might even be like a dick swinging contest in terms of seeing who goes out there and is able to pull off the submission victory and i feel like it's going to be in the side of charles rosa
Now he has almost you know half the amount of fights that Derek Minner has, but I think his quality of opponents is definitely more than what Derek Minner has been fighting in the past. Minner obviously coming over off a very quick submission victory against TJ Laramie, where we saw I think the bright lights really get to Laramie in that fight. You know, uh, I think he got hurt to the body if I'm not mistaken, and then uh, we we saw him diving for a for a for a takedown, and that's when Derek Minner was really able to get his uh, choke going and pulls off the guillotine choke. Very awkward and unfortunate position for TJ Laramie to get stuck in, especially up against the cage and not really having much uh, room to get out. Uh, so that really played against him there but that's the veteran savvy of Derek Minner knowing the positioning of where there are in the cage and how it would uh or or knowing that the the ways for TJ Laramie to get out were very pretty much close to none so um you know, good good fight IQ from Derek Minner, at least, you know, in his first rounds, uh, going for submissions and all that stuff, even against Herbert Burns on the Contender Series. Like, he came in as a plus 485 dog and gave Herbert Burns pretty much everything he could handle. We saw Burns uh, survive it and then eventually pull off a submission victory of his own, and we saw Derek Minner go on to the regional scene, accumulate two more submission wins, and then come back to the UFC, lose via submission to Grant Dawson, but then come back and obviously submit TJ Laramie. So, this fight, I'm very much excited for i think it's going to be a grappler's delight but the one thing that i think we can bank on here is the under two and a half hitting so i'm going to be going for that uh, i can currently get minus 160 on one of my books that's the line that i think i'm going to hit uh but I, i'm very much looking forward to it. i think the implied odds are like 60 percent based on what i think minus 160 if i'm not mistaken might be off a little bit but i believe it hits at like an 85 percent clip uh based on the uh, you know historical data based on both of these guys so you know how can you go against that especially given the type of fighter that Derek Minner is he's one of those like Nico Prices one of those Jillian Robertson type fighters that you can almost kind of bank on on a regular basis to hit that under two and a half and if anything I think he's even more reliable uh, than the Nico Prices and the Jillian Robertsons to go out there and hit that under two and a half so uh, the spot that I'm looking at is the under two and a half. I'm going to go with Charles Rosa. I think he survives the first round and then in that second round pulls off a submission victory of his own. So once again, I'll go with Charles Rosa to win this fight via second round submission. Ketlin Vieira versus Yana Kunitskaya. We got minus 270 on Ketlin Vieira and plus 230 on Yana Kunitskaya. Let's start off with the Kunitskaya side who's a 3-2 in her last five. She's coming off a victory over Juliana or Juliana uh, or Yulia Stoliarenko, I should say. I want to be as phonetically correct as possible. Uh, she went into that fight as a minus-160 favorite and pretty much just grinded that fight uh, as best as you could. I believe in that fight she accrued over 13 minutes of control time where she was just pulling Stoliarenko up against the cage and just landing some good knees, landing some good dirty boxing uh, techniques and just pretty much roughing her up against the cage. It's not often that you see whenever a fighter is pushing another fighter up against the cage that they're trying to hold them up. Like you can see Stolyarenko was just trying to like deadweight it and trying to pull uh, Yana Kunitskaya into her guard. And uh, there's instances where you see, you know, Kunitskaya with both underhooks just trying to hold this woman up and keep her in that position. And I think that's just, um, you know, a, a, an accreditation to uh, how good Stolyarenko is off of her back and Yana wanting no part of that. 
she believed like her best path to victory was just keeping this fight close uh in terms of space pushing her up against the cage and just doing a, a bunch of uh, control and uh, damage up against the cage uh whereas in the open space Stolyarenko could probably be a little bit more wild and cause exchanges that could get this fight to the ground uh you know so you know we saw some good uh fight iq from kunitskaya and even when this fight did end up on the ground a couple of times there were some very hairy moments for kunitskaya where we saw Stolyarenko close on some submission attempts however Yana did a really good job in terms of staying out of those uh, or at least not getting to the point of uh, submission so uh, solid work from Kunitskaya in that fight that seems to be her approach in her last several fights now where it's just like overpowering your opponent pushing them up against the cage you know getting those double underhooks kind of like Stipe and uh, Daniel Cormier you know what I mean where uh, Daniel wasn't really able to get much of his game off because we saw the double underhooks from uh, Stipe pushing him up against the cage and doing some good work from there that's pretty much what Kunitskaya has been doing in her last several fights it hasn't worked out for her in that Aspen Ladd fight where Ladd did a good job of, you know, digging her under hooks as, uh, as quickly as possible, getting off the cage, landing some good shots of her own, and then eventually getting the finish in that third round. Renault, it worked great against her in those first two rounds. Uh, you know, she did a good job of kind of just picking and, and moving and, you know, picking uh, Renault apart from distance, but also like pushing up against the cage and doing some good work there. We obviously know she got busted up in that third round, but luckily enough for her, the judges did not see it as a 10-8. I agree, it should have just been a 10-9 for Renault in that round, hence why she still came away with the 29-28 decision victory there. Uh, you know, very unfortunate UFC debut for her, and, you know, it's kind of like a hazing phase for her in terms of going in there and fighting a girl like Chris Eiberg at 145 pounds, uh, you know, loses that fight relatively quickly and then drops down to 135 and faces girls like Lena Landsberg, Marion Renault, and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Now, in this fight against Ketlin Vieira, I don't think she'll be as successful in, uh, you know, using that, that, uh, that strategy of just pushing Ketlin up against the cage, trying to overpower her and land some good knees and, and do some solid work from inside the cage. I think Ketlin's going to be, this, well, she is the same size as her here, virtually identical, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but I think that Ketlin will uh, will have a slight uh, strength advantage as well, too. And we've seen a propensity from her in the past where when she is in those positions, uh, you know, with wrestlers like Ev Ashley Evan Smith, Sarah McMahon, even Kat Zingano, she does a good job of like digging those underhooks immediately and uh, reversing the position and then doing some good work from herself uh, in, in those positions. Now, I can see this fight playing similarly to um, Ashley Evan Smith versus Kathleen Vera if we see Yana Kunitskaya abandon the whole clinch cage work type of game plan and try to pick apart Vieira from the outside. It's going to look like the numbers are in favor of Ashley Evan Smith, but the damage is going to be coming from Ketlin, who throws absolute heat behind her shots whenever she's striking. So I like what we see from her. Uh, I think she learned a lot from her first ever loss, which was that Irene Aldana fight, where she was throwing a little bit more winging hooks and, and just throwing a lot of uh, reckless abandon into her strikes and not really respecting the game that was coming back from, her, uh, from Irene Aldana. Mixed into the fact that she was coming off a pretty hefty layoff. Uh, you know, I believe it was UFC 222 that she fought Kat Zingano and got that decision victory. And then it was UFC 245 where she fought uh, Irene Aldana and uh, came up short there. You know, she she was a little bit too overconfident, uh, you know, just being a little bit too reckless on the feet. And we saw Irene, you know, slightly more technical on the feet and was able to land the crisper shot that put uh, Ketlin Vieira's lights out. 
Then we saw Vieira thankfully come back uh, last year and fight Sajara Eubanks, get back on the winning track, win those first two rounds. The third round, we saw Eubanks push a little bit more, but Vieira did enough in those first two rounds in terms of the striking realm that she was able to come away with a decision victory there. I think she's going to have the harder and more pop on her shots here in this fight against Yana Kuniskaya. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a, a little bit of a, a crimson mask from Yana, Yana Kuniskaya the longer this fight goes on. So the line still is a little bit too wide for me. I'd be, I'm hoping that we'll see a little bit of Kunitskaya money come in as I do think that Vera is a solid spot here. I was looking for a reason to bet Kunitskaya, but given her her past strategies and how she matches up against Vera, I think she's just going to be outgunned and outmuscled in this matchup and it's going to be a little bit too much for her to overcome here. So I'll go with Vera. I think she wins by decision and I wouldn't be surprised to throw her in as a parlay piece, maybe not as like a lock of the night type of parlay piece, but still a solid parlay piece if there's something else on the card that's worthy of uh, of teaming it up with. But I think this is a solid fight for Kat then to, you know, get this winning streak going, get it two in a row, uh, you know, go back to uh, getting onto that track to, to get a bantamweight title shot. And I think she's still one of the top girls in this division. Again, the amount of heat that she throws in her punches, uh, how strong she is, uh, solid jiu-jitsu game as well too, trains under Andre Pedaneris as well, down there at Team Novo Uniao. I think she has all the ingredients to go out there and be a title challenger in the very near near future. And I think that Yana Kuninskaya is just another person that she should be able to add to that uh, that win column of hers. So I'll go with Vera to win this fight via decision. Curtis Blades versus Derek Lewis. We got minus 345 on Curtis Razor Blades and plus 295 on Derek the Black Beast Lewis. Now, if you guys remember, these guys were scheduled to fight each other back in November. Unfortunately, uh, I believe it was Blades that tested positive for COVID or something along those lines. The fight had to get pulled and now they're rescheduled uh, for this uh, this weekend and I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and it's a fight that I'm almost glad that I got a little bit of extra time to think about it because originally, if you guys do remember my breakdown, you guys can go back and listen to it on my uh, on my channel, obviously. But uh, that was a fight where I'm like, okay, this fight will be 95% Curtis Blades. And then once the fight does find its way back onto the feet, Derek Lewis will land that bomb and put him out. Because, you know, the only other times that we've seen Curtis Blades fight a heavy power puncher like a uh, Derek Lewis was Francis Ngannou. And I truly think that it's like, Number one, Francis Ngannou. Number two, Derek Lewis, in terms of uh, amount of power that they pack in their punches. However, the more that you think about it, and like I've I've had this approach in prior fights with Derek Lewis, where I go, okay, he's gonna lose this fight unless he lands a bomb, and that's usually somewhat low percentage uh, of a path to victory. You know, I, I bet, uh, I'm trying to look back and remember, I believe I bet Marcin Tybura against him. That was a fight where Tybura was pretty much winning the entire thing. Uh, the Alexander Volkov one is obviously the one that stands out the most. Was winning that fight, pretty much had 11 seconds left to survive. Black Beast lands that bomb and knocks him out. Uh, and then as of late, you know, I haven't really looked to fade him or anything like that, but I truly think that Curtis Blades is the best opponent that he's faced to this point that will absolutely exploit Derek Lewis and uh, pretty much shut down the knockout ability that we see from Derek. Now, the the other concerning things are when you're looking at Derek Lewis's his last fight against Alexei Olenek. We did see Olenek very successful in getting this fight to the ground. Uh, he landed, well, it only looks like one takedown, but it seems like he had more time there. He did accrue close to two and a half minutes of control time against uh, Blake, uh, Lewis. But I was very 
skeptical about the approach that Olenek took in that fight. You know what I mean? He had these solid positions where he was the one on top, but just for some reason decided to go for scarf holds instead of, you know, passing to full guard and maybe raining down some shots and opening up the back and possibly sinking in a rear naked choke. And not to mention, he was very close to completing that key lock uh, as well at the end of the first round. If he had another maybe 15, 20, 25 seconds, he probably would have completed that submission. And we're talking about Alexei Olenek here uh, going up against... um, Curtis Blades and not Derek Lewis. You know what I mean? It's it's as small as that. And then we see Derek Lewis go out in that second round and absolutely bomb on Alexio Olenek and get the finish there. But I think the abilities that Curtis Blades has to get this fight to the ground are a lot easier and I think are a lot safer as well too. And not to mention we've seen a little bit of improvements from Curtis Blades in his hands, most notably his fight against uh, Junior Dos Santos where we saw him go out there and you know change levels a lot, give a lot to um, Junior Dos Santos to think about and then eventually landed a beautiful bomb where we saw him just unload the craziest combination that we've seen, probably the most powerful combination that we've seen from uh, Curtis Blades as well too and he puts away Junior Dos Santos. In his last fight, five round uh, uh battle not battle but like five round uh unanimous decision victory over alexander volkov but he was really huffing and puffing at the latter part of that round or that fight i should say we did see volkov have some success in that fifth round but curtis blades was absolutely pooped absolutely exhausted now i read a little bit too much into that when i first did the breakdown for this fight you know i thought that curtis blades didn't really have the greatest gas tank based off that Alexander Volkov fight alone. But if you really watch that fight, and even though he completed 14 out of 25 takedowns and accrued as much uh, control time as he did, I do want to get the actual number on that before I continue on. But uh, Alexander Volkov did a really good job in terms of making it difficult for um, Curtis Blades to hold him down. Uh, That's what caused Curtis Blades to start huffing and puffing as much as he did. You know what I mean? In that fight, he accrued close to 20 minutes of control time, went 14 of 25 on takedowns, uh, and landed 116 strikes just from the top. But Volkov did a good job of continuously moving, uh, you know, doing some good damage from uh, himself from the bottom, but always getting back to his feet. Like, in terms of the amount of takedowns that Curtis Blades was landing, he was landing, um, so he went 5 of 6 in round 1. 3 of 4 in round 2, 1 of 4 in round 3, 3 of 6 in round 4, and then 2 of 5 in round uh, in round 5. When you're shooting an average of 5 takedowns per round, yeah, it's going to gas you. Not to mention uh, against a big, big guy like Alexander Volkov, it is going to gas you out. So I did knock on Curtis Blades a little bit too much when I initially broke this fight down. With Derek Lewis, on the other hand, I don't think he's going to have the cardio to really hold up later in these fights. And even though he does have those blitz moments where he's able to gather up enough energy to go out there and put your lights out like he did against Alexander Volkov in round three, um, it just really catches up to him. And I think that this stylistic matchup here with Curtis Blades, who's going to be the most dominant wrestler that we've seen Derek Lewis fight since Daniel Cormier, who did choke him out in the, I believe it was second round of their fight, um... It's going to catch up to Lewis here. Like, he's only going to be able to do this fuck it, I'm getting up type of technique for so long. I think it'll only work for maybe about three rounds. I'll give him three rounds. But I think that the wear and tear of Curtis Blades continuously being on top of him is really going to really gonna mess with him. And he's just going to eventually have to give up his back and, and just start to curl up and take these big shots from Curtis Blades. So the, li- the, the, the line of thinking that I have here actually 
is a Curtis Blades to win inside the distance. I think that his uh, grappling game is going to be too much. I think Volkov just made it so so much more difficult for Blades to get comfortable on top. Whereas for Lewis, like his guard is almost non-existent. So we can see Curtis just you know uh, flow on top of him and and pass without much resistance, and then maybe get full mount, and give up the back of uh, Derek Lewis, and then just start pounding on him there. So. I think that we'll see a lot of people be on the Curtis Blades via decision side here. However, I think the the top pressure is going to be too much for Derek Lewis, and we see Curtis Blades kind of just ground and pound, and maybe even sink in a choke if Derek Lewis gives up his back. Um, again, I'm a Derek Lewis fan. I, I hope that he wins, uh, but in terms of my brain, it's very hard to overlook the significant grappling advantage that Curtis Blades is going to have here, not to mention the progress that we've seen in Curtis's game. So if you just take the Alexander Volkov fight and be like, okay, the lasting impression is that he was the one, uh, you know, gassing out and almost fell over and fainted in his post-fight interview, you got to give a little bit of credit to Volkov in terms of making him work the way he did. And I don't think we're going to see Lewis make him work that hard either. So I think we see Blades get this fight down. Blades um, pretty much just smother him. I give Derek Lewis maybe a round and a half tops in terms of being able to like do something. After that, I think it's going to be all Blades. And I do think that we see Blades get this fight done with as well too. So I'll go with Curtis. I'll go with him to win inside the distance. We currently don't have an odd uh, or a line on it yet, so I can't give you guys that. He is minus 345. I'm assuming most people would think he wins by decision, so we might get some, some solid plus money maybe on uh, Blades to win this fight inside the distance, but that's the spot that I feel most confident about. And again, I still have the rest of the card to go through still, but this one seems like the most... Um, intriguing to me the one that we might get the most value on as well too and that's why I like me some uh, some Curtis Blades here to continue to show that he's making improvements and uh, show that he can go up against a guy that has as much knockout power as uh, as a Derek Lewis right Again, I've always went out there and, and faded the Derek Lewis thing in terms of knowing that this guy, technically speaking, isn't the greatest fighter, but he just always gets away with his durability and his knockout power. But it's going to come to a stop when he's fighting guys to the level of Curtis Blades who are just going to continuously take him down, ragdoll him on the ground, and then possibly open up a, uh, a finish. I wouldn't even be surprised to see like a brutal ground and pound type of finish similar to what we saw from Curtis Blades and Alistair Overeem. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the narrative that I'm going to be going with here. And it's very you know rare for for you guys to see a, an instance like this for me where we have two guys matched up their fight get cancelled and then my my narrative kind of flip on it like that first breakdown i did absolutely admit that we're going to see blades take him down over and over again the only thing that changed is my belief in uh blades not gassing out like he did against volkov I'm not crediting Volkov enough or I didn't credit him enough when I did my initial breakdown whereas here you see you know Derek Lewis is just he's not, he doesn't have much off of his back he just survives enough that he eventually finds his way back to his feet but this is the first time he's fighting a guy again outside of Daniel Cormier who has solid top control, can do damage from on top, and is as strong as he is too. I think that's going to cause Derek Lewis a lot of problems here. So I'll go with Curtis Blades to win this fight, probably probably by third or fourth round TKO, maybe even a submission too, if he wants to throw it in there. But the spot that I'm going to be going with is the inside the distance for our guy Curtis Blades. So once again, Curtis Blades by third or fourth round TKO. 
And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys appreciate them. Once again, I apologize for the delay, but at least they're out. You guys have ingested them. I hope I'm able to help you guys make some good choices for this weekend's event. Hopefully we can cash. Um, again, check out the Patreon as well if you guys want to support your boy. Five bucks a month. Link is in the description below. Coolbet.com, promo code MMALOTN2. And uh, yeah, subscribe, like the video as well too. And I'll see you guys throughout the week. I got my propping you up stream coming up. I got my final weigh-in stream coming up. And then obviously my fight day stream at 1 p.m. Eastern where I take all questions and comments from the live chat. I'll see you guys throughout the week and good luck on your bets this weekend.